Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Godfather Part 2, starring Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Robert De Niro, John Cazal, and Lee Strasberg. Screenplay by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Welcome back to Rise Smile Films. It's time to continue on with our Godfather trilogy retrospective cast, going through each entry, one, two, and three. And here we are, right smack dab in the middle, Godfather Part 2 from 1974. This was that year's Best Picture winner. I believe it was the first, kind of get these out of the way right now, first sequel to, I think, maybe be nominated and win Best Picture. And the only other one that's done the same was uh, Return of the King, Lord of the Rings. So sequels weren't as common back then as they are now. It was kind of almost kind of a a slap in the face to the audience that you really want to continue the, the series with a part two. That's almost kind of like a negative connotation, right? Yeah. I mean, of course we've had Bride of Frankenstein and I, I said I was going to do a little research to see if this was the first part two and it wasn't. There was a hammer horror film from the fifties, Quatermass, the Quatermass experiment. And there's a sequel Quatermass two with the number two, <laughs> but this one, I mean, for a major studio motion picture, this is kind of a first, what do you kind of think of that? I mean, especially looking back now and, we're just inundated with sequels, right? We just we yeah. just live each year with so many sequels. Back then, what do you kind of what do you kind of think about that? It's hard to say because, like you said, most summer stuff or tentpole stuff is usually a sequel anymore. I feel like, yeah. and that's part of the Marvel curse. But if you go back to the original version of this film, and if you look at the source material from which it derived or was derived along with it, that's Puzo's novel. Mm-hmm. There's plenty in there for them to finish. So maybe, and this is a big maybe, maybe the audience's appetite was such that it wasn't seen as, oh, I roll another one. Mm-hmm. But maybe with the way they finished the first one, a highly anticipated or maybe liked yeah. sequel. Uh, if it's if me... I probably would like it, but it's hard to say because I've grown up in a world of sequels. So I don't know if I have an answer. Like I think about my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad was a really early film critic influence in my life. And most of it was just eye roll with anything having to do with horror. And I specifically remember having those conversations with him around Halloween, mm. the Halloween franchise. Yeah. Um, but I know we watched this film together. So, mm-hmm. and even that's sort of hypocritical from him because his favorite type of movie was the John Wayne Western and really weren't all those kind of sequels anyway. Yeah. They weren't. Or remakes of themselves. The yeah. yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? I, I mean, know. It, it banked, right? So no, it, it, it did make money, but it made a fraction of what the first film did. And then I, I thought this was the most shocking thing I discovered. Kind of critically divided um, when it came out. Mm but had a quick reappraisal. Like I'm talking about within like the next year of people like, no, this is, this is awesome. This is a masterpiece. Uh, so we'll get into all of that and some interesting little anecdotes. And we got a quite a hefty story load to, to dive in and get through, but there's a lot of juicy nuggets in there. And some, like, like you said, you're picking out things that you may not have noticed as good 
so some viewings. There's some things I noticed in, in this viewing that are just like, whoa, mm-hmm. like what's going on here with that? But uh, some more of the Rowan's Creek Kentucky bourbon whiskey. This was really good last week. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Cheers. Mm-hmm. It's really good this week, too. Excellent. Well, let's not beat around the bush. Let's get started with our flight question. like our little musical and, and intros it kind of sets the tone for the podcast right it sure does music's the tone setter so we might as well get in there with that little jaunty tune of <laughs> and that's played when uh Vito's on the ship and he sees the statue for the first time yeah the immigrant is what it's called i believe mm, perfect the flight this week has to do with something we teased out a little bit last week and that's relationships between men and specifically women that aren't worth a damn. Mm-hmm. So I asked you, and they don't have to be ranked. I just wanted you to come up with three yeah. of your most detestable, least dislikable, or most dislikable, most off-putting females, that spouse, wife, girlfriend, girlfriend in film or TV okay. that you can come up with. So give us three okay. that you find just to be absolute trash or better off being dead or single sure sure uh, this was a great question and inspired it, by k in this yes yeah, inspired by k and, and you kind of alluded to me a little breaking bad and i think that show in this particular film have a lot in common yeah uh we can get into that a little bit later but great question we could even do one of these days we'll have to do the husband because as oh, yeah. i was doing research i was like oh my gosh there's a lot of really bad <laughs> husbands in film as well true uh, my number three, I am starting with a bit on the lighter side. Uh, this is Judith, played by Amanda Peet in the film Saving Silverman. Oh, wow. She's just the worst, right? She uh, she's a micromanager. She uh, she at one point tells Jason Biggs, don't make me take away masturbation privileges. Exactly. <laughs> like, she just runs every part of his life to the point where she's getting him new friends and trying to get rid of Steve Zahn and Jack Black and that, to the point where they're like, we're going to kidnap her, set you up with a different woman, it's 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 not the it's not a masterpiece, but there's kind of I've always had a soft spot for Saving Silverman. It's like the right kind of stupid comedy that just tickles my funny bones. So, and a lot of large part of that's to her. She's just she's the worst. <laughs> so, can I tell you about Amanda Peet for a minute? Sure. My first introduction to Amanda Peet was in that might have been FX, mm. a television show she was on. I think it was called Jack and Jill. Mm. Um, it was kind of a sort of friends, but imagine a bit more on the the drama side. I want to know, I love that choice. I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. I want to know what your take on Amanda Peet is, just career-wise. I don't know. I think it, the, there's certainly some interesting, like Identity, uh, Silverman, the show you just mentioned. There's a lot of misses in there too, but I just don't know if she ever got that opportunity to like be like in like a Julia Roberts type of film, like... Her in like as Tess Ocean or in uh, in Ocean's Eleven, I could totally see that, but I, she just never got those type of roles. It's interesting that you brought up Julie Roberts because that's what I was thinking. I think she was supposed to be the next her. Sure. Whether it's career choice or lack of acting talent or mm-hmm. God only knows what. Yeah. 
that's a career that really, really stalled out. Yeah. It was close. Mm-hmm. I mean, all right. So one more side question on this. Okay. Which career stalled out with more promise? We did this Hers? question a lot, right? <laughs> well, and it's going to be the same choice here. Okay. Her or Dane DeHaan? Oh, man. Yeah. It's got to be Dane, right? I think so. Too. Dane got, Dane did get the roles. They were just bad decisions. I mean, Chronicle beside itself, that's, we really both really like that movie, but Amazing Spider-Man 2, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Really lot, good and in treatment. Yeah, a lot, a lot of misses there. A lot of misses. Yeah. Good one. I like that. That's a good choice. Thank you. All right. I'm going to start with uh, another De Niro flick. I don't know if this is a De Niro flick today, but it kind of is. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Mrs. Sharon Stone as Ginger in the film Casino. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really bad wife. Yeah. <laughs> Gold digging, kicking him to the curb for James Woods and Joe Pesci. Yeah. If De Niro can't compete with James Woods and Joe Pesci, yeah. and she finds them more attractive than him, it's not really a De Niro thing. That's your wife sucks thing. Mm-hmm. That woman literally brings this man to his demise. She is the reason that he's dead. She's really good in that movie. Yeah. She's really good in a couple things. Huh? Yeah, yeah. She's got a couple roles where she plays a terrible wife. I don't choose the other one, but the other one would obviously be Total Recall. Yeah. Lori, what are you doing this, Lori? Yeah, she's terrible. <laughs> Consider that a divorce. She's not very good in Basic Instinct either, but she was not really. Was she ever wait, the girlfriend? I guess. What would we call her? The I girlfriend? don't know. It's more of a... Mrs. Tuesday Night? It's an evil fling. It's, yeah. just, it's a fling you don't want to mess with. Sounds like the name of a thrash band. Yeah. Evil fling. Great choice. Casino could wheel its way into another possible gangster casket later down the road. Yeah, I think that's kind of a must at mm-hmm. some point. Great choice. Thanks. My number two, I am going horror for this one. Uh, this is Julia from Hellraiser. So Julia is uh, tasked with bringing her ex-lover Frank... Uh, people because he's just a husk and so she's got to bring him victims so he can fill out the rest of his visage Mm. meanwhile she's like having all these memories of this affair she had with him and she's living in the house with her husband and his daughter Mm. so she's a terrible wife because she's a murderer she's cheating and yeah she's ultimately she gets disposed of and she's just so hateable she has the worst hairdo in that film of like any hairdos in like 80s cinema it's Mm. big it's red it's stupid <laughs> good one yeah good one I, and i tried to pick characters that when you walk away you're just like gosh i really hated that character like if Marsha gay harden was married in the mist she'd be number one on this list oh yeah yeah just like you just people you just grow to despise good jesse mm-hmm. I, wow to find one in horror that's pretty good mm-hmm. i'm proud of you number two another film that we've talked about quite a bit that i hope makes the show someday okay. it stars matt dillon a very young Joaquin Phoenix. The worst thing you can possibly do is marry the ambitious weather girl. And in this film to die for her name is Suzanne. And it's played by the super smoking hot Nicole Kidman. Good choice. Fuck. She's brutal. Yeah. I just watched that about a month ago. Did it hold up? Oh yeah. It's kind of, it's got like a John Waters like vibe to it, but it's not like gross and weird. Like John Waters. Who did that film? Who directed Gus Van Sant? Why did I I knew that? Mm -hmm. Well, he's at, a good run right there with my own private Idaho. And he's doing some good stuff about that time. Isn't mm-hmm. he? Um, Very young Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. We'll forgive him the mistake of psycho, but that's a, another story for sure. another day. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, that's a, a really fun, interesting film that God, somehow we have to do. Uh, maybe that's the cask. Mm-hmm. Terrible wives. Yeah. It'd be a fun cast. <laughs> that's a good entries we're coming up with. 
Dying to Hear Number One. Or it, was, the one. it was good. It was like a true crime. I think it's based on an actual it is, yeah. thing that happened. And it was kind of an interesting fourth wall breaking way way of doing that. I think Wayne Knight's in that movie too. Mm-hmm. Uh Kurtwood Smith, I think is her is her yeah. dad. Yeah. Uh I think Dan Hedea's floating around in that thing too. Yeah. It was great. That was a great rewatch. Well, who's uh who's his sister? What's I can never remember her name. She's also in um, Cape Fear, the one with De Niro. Not Juliet Lewis. Uh, Elena the, Douglas. Yeah. Right. You remember who beats the hell out yep, of her? Yep. Yeah. Great, great, great choice. Yeah. We need to turn more people onto that film. That's kind of a very sneaky one that I know a lot of people haven't seen. Is but, that another cast too, Jesse? The things you should have seen that you didn't number two. Oh yeah. We should do that hmm. for sure. Okay. My number one, I mentioned this film last week. Uh, clearly one of the most detestable characters in film cinema it's uh, Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. <laughs> this is a, a good choice. This is a woman who's obsessed with one man, Ashley Wilkes, no matter what. And even though Ashley Wilkes has made the full choice to marry his cousin, <laughs> this is not going to stop Scarlett O'Hara from pining over him. Not through one, two, or three marriages, she is still in love with this man. Mm. And even when her now friend, uh, uh, Oh God! What the Olivia De Havilland? I can't remember Melanie. Yeah. When she dies, Rhett Butler so eloquently says, "She's dead now. You can go be with her, Scarlet." And he just leaves. He's just like, "Cause I know that's what you want." Number one for me. We've covered this character on the podcast before. It's Mrs. Barbara Stanwyck as Felix Dietrichson in Double Indemnity. Great choice. Of course, she's a terrible wife. Mm-hmm. She kills two of her husbands. If you want to do Walter Neff, add the boyfriend in there, kind of does him in too. Mm-hmm. That is a gold digging, violent, beautiful performance mm-hmm. from an ugly wig wearing red lipstick in black and white that looks like a red gash in her face. Horrific woman. And that's why that film is so good. Yeah. That's the film, fem, the film. The femme fatale that is the top of the charts of all femme fatales. She's the template, right? She is the template. Yeah. Cora, whether it's Jessica Lang or um, <clears throat> the original, um, plays the original Cora, and the original Postman always rings twice. Oh my God! Both of them. That's not are Mer- Myrna Loy, is it? No, I'll look it up in a minute. Okay. Both of them are terrific, but they are just trying to be as wicked as Phyllis Dietrichson. Great choice. Yeah, calculating, cold, sexy. <laughs> it's it's the entire in her own kind of trashy way. Yeah, it's the entire package. Do you think that that was something that Stanwyck really embraced? Because, you know. I think so. I don't think trashy harlot is something that a lot of women were willing to do. But for Stanwyck, outside of being just sort of bitchy in Stella Dallas, Mm -hmm. I don't know if she'd really, I mean, you can make the case in Ball of Fire, but that's gangster mall and kind of singy, dancey, Snow Whitey, sort of cute. Yeah. Um, And that's a crazy role for her. Good choice. Fun category, yeah. Fun category, good, good list. A lot to, a lot to really choose from and dive in. So. I hate your women. <laughs> <laughs> so, cheers. Let's dive in. We got a ton to talk about. We are starting in the past first with our review breakdown of The Godfather Part Two. When you're grande, se ne viene per fare vendetta. Ti piacere, Vincenzo? Sparagnatemi, sto figlio mio. Tengo solo a chiesto. Signore Zumio, vi giuro che io non fa niente, oh signoria. Mus paragnas. No. 
So we start out this film, or we start out with our titles again, and then we actually start with Michael getting the signature Godfather kiss on the ring, right? And then an empty chair, Mario Puzo's The Godfather Part 2. What do you kind of think of that imagery? I mean, why does Coppola decide to show us an empty chair to show show the titles? Uh, The woman is Lana Turner from Postman, and the answer to your question, I think it's he has incredibly big shoes to fill in the vacated, recently thrown his father has left behind. Yeah. Uh, it's a really chilling image because mm-hmm. we've seen him get the kiss. Yeah. But why is that chair empty? Mm-hmm. Is it that he's not able? Is it that he's not fully capable or he's not um, wanton of it enough? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels in this film. And what I, re- like you said, you noticed some things this time. What I noticed this time is a lot of the moments in this story where we see Michael have to make decisions, we get the flashback to Vito going through a similar decision. Mm -hmm. But if Michael's at 11, Vito's, which for any normal human would also be in 11, the conflict that he's been presented with, they feel like fours. Yeah, I mean, consider having to deal with, um, oh, the Don in Little Italy when he, when Vito's grown up. Don like, Finucci. Yeah, thank you, Don Finucci. Consider dealing with Don Finucci compared to like Hyman Roth. Mm-hmm. And they really do juxtapose those two stories with each other. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I think that's the film's greatest <clears throat> strength here. And probably a lot of pushback. Um, a lot of the criticism was levied against the parallel storylines that each one didn't get enough room to breathe on its own. But I think that's a terrible criticism because they, they both play so well together. Right, so we start with young Vito. We're back in the town of Corleone, 1907, I believe, early 1900s, and they're attending the father, uh, the funeral of his father, who insulted the local chieftain Don Ciccio, Chichi, and was killed for it. We we see it all off screen, and we just see this procession, this barren kind of wasteland Italian funeral procession, and. Not one tragedy, but two tragedies because the older brother, Paolo, is is killed and gunned down as well. So we're dealing with a mob boss here that's very ruthless, and anyone that seeks revenge or is coming after you or insults you is is met with the blade or, or, or a gun. Uh, Vito is indoctrinated into violence at a very young age. And then the sound clip I just played, when the mother goes to the Don to plead to... Spare my son's life. He is dumb and slow-witted, much like Fredo <laughs> uh, a little bit. He says no, because when he's older, he's going to want to come after me. He's going to want revenge. And so they just blow the mother away. <laughs> and just stone-cold blast. Oh, gosh. I, what, what do you think of this opening here in, in, in Sicily with, with young Vito? I think this is a tremendous way to start the film. The sepia-looking film stock mm-hmm. that they use, it just it looks old school uh it looks authentic and we do have subtitles this time because everything in the past is all in italian mm-hmm. for the most part uh showing the humble roots of this guy who's going to become the godfather i mean i don't think you could start this film any better than the way they do somehow this movie is able to take 
what is a really slow time in the movie compared to the last 20 minutes, which is all of Vito's backstory. And they give you in each one of the times we see his backstory, a singular event that's played out, I think fairly, fairly long, Mm -hmm. but despite like stealing a carpet or watching your brother get gunned down at your father's funeral procession and then pleading for your life with the dawn. I think the, the speed of those is inferior, not quality wise, but temperature wise to what Michael's having to deal with in real time. Mm -hmm. But one of the greatest strengths of this film is those are as interesting, if not more interesting than what Michael's going through. And so what you get is, you know, in film, when we break away from main action to cut to subtext action, and it serves not really any other purpose than just a tension break to let it build back up and and get you going again. Like that's a very common core uh, horror and comedy technique. Mm -hmm. This sort of does the same thing, but when we break away to young Vito, that story in its own right might be just as interesting as Michael's contemporary story. And a lot less happens. Mm -hmm. He's dealing with a lot less than battling crime syndicates for his old turf in New York City and takeovers of casinos globally, not only in Nevada, but globally, Mm -hmm. and senators with ulterior motives. Like, There's a lot that Michael's dealing with that should make that really ripe and, oh, get back to that story. But when we go to Vito, and maybe it's also because De Niro's really, really good in this. Yeah. I think it's equally interesting at a much slower, simpler pace. Yeah. Michael even tells his mother so much, doesn't he, when he says times are changing. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that when we get there, but they are changing. Yeah, the things are different. And I like that you brought up the sepia too. Talk about that because you often talk about the way we see the story through the camera. So tell me why you like that sepia so much. I mean, if you're trying to show, you know, this bygone era and really, really differentiate the two separate timelines, like there's this like... <laughs> hazy like sepia glow to the prequel stuff i'll just call it that for for the time being and it really makes it look and a lot of that's the production design too like i don't know how coppola pulled off some of those scenes in the street like it looks like 1917 looks remarkable but yeah i think it just it helps the the balance if everything's more stark and cold with with mark michael everything's really kind of warm here and that's their two personalities. I mean, mm, that's good. It does create a warm feeling, doesn't it? I really noticed this mm. time. We'll talk about Ellis Island here in a second, but like Vito, all the decisions he makes, everything is really based with the goodness and intention and, and warm heart that we do see traces of in the first film, which is, I will do this for you, but you'll owe me a service. And here it's, the scene that really made that stand out to me is when he's let go of his job because Don Finucci's nephew needs that job now. And the shopkeep wants to send him home with a box of groceries and stuff. And he like refuses it. Yeah. Don Vito's kind of a good guy. Uh, he's dare I say the hero of the yeah. story. Mm-hmm. And when he does choose to use violence, it's usually with good intentions. And when we get to see that with well, the opposite of that, with what Michael's doing, it just makes that those those gaps, those generational gaps, seem even 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 greater. It seems like Don Vito mm-hmm. is okay with forgiveness as long as there's a favor that comes along with that forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Take for example the young 
veto and the dealing with the landlord who wants to evict the woman because of her dog. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to wonder if that's Michael. And again, that's a far inferior problem to what Michael is dealing with, like almost being gunned down at your bedroom window. Mm -hmm. This is just a, a landlord disagreement with the tenant. So it's on the conflict scale, much, much lower. But he almost is able to give forgiveness with a smile, not hold a vendetta, because he recognizes as everybody is a potential ally insofar as there's something that they can give me, mm -hmm. and that makes me powerful. Yeah. Michael's power comes from, I'm going to wipe everybody else out, so there just is no other competition. There's no players, yeah. And that's the two big differences in the Dons, isn't it? Michael mm -hmm. and, and Vito. Yeah. Vito is assimilation through a shared mutual interest and this favor system, which is why he doesn't take the food from that shopkeeper because I don't want to owe anybody anything. Yeah. Because someday I'm going to have to repay it. Yeah. Michael's is complete isolation through destruction. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to argue if Vito's style would work in 1950s, 19th, late 50s, 60s. Mm -hmm. And it's also hard to argue would Michael's style work in 19 aughts because we sort of, or teens, we see the violent dons in the teens basically get killed. Yeah. Fanucci gets smoked. So maybe it's just a natural, it's a natural rise and a natural fall. I mean, it's those two ideals are opposed to each other that my guess Michael's just destined to fail with his current way of running business. Is Vito smarter than Michael? Well, we talked about this last week, and I think we kind of came to a conclusion, at least Michael was the smartest of his brothers. He might be smarter than his dad, but his dad has street smarts, and I attribute a lot of that to how when he gets off this boat at Ellis Island, he's an orphan, he barely speaks, he's not going to speak the language, first of all. He also has smallpox, so he has to quarantine for three months, and then they cut away, and I really appreciate the time gap to when we see him next, where he's maybe... 20 that's a one at nine to like 17, 17. Yeah. so yeah 20 22 yeah and they have their first kid sonny santino mm -hmm. uh how did he get from there to there obviously there was a, a he really had to probably really just make it on his own find any job he could pick up on any education he could from from place to place he was really dealt a shit hand and i think he's made the most of it and that's just growing up on the streets there in little italy uh, and that knowledge, that experience working with the people on the street level, helping people at such a simple, a simplicity as, yeah, let me get you your apartment back because you got kicked out because you have a loud dog or let me, uh, hide this, uh, gun for you or, or these things, but I'm not even going to look at it cause it's not my business. Vito's very much a family solitary man, right? Even when, uh, his buddy eyebrows, <laughs> Tessio. Yeah. Young Tessio. Takes him to see uh Brows is right, man. Yeah. Takes him to see whatever play that was in this particular actress. He's like, she's she's real beautiful, don't you agree? He's like, Oh, my wife and my son are good enough for me. And he's very happy and content with what he's got and doesn't want anything to disrupt that little ecosystem. Right. So yeah, I think I think Michael might be smarter, but he lacks the experience, the knowledge, the doing it with nothing. Michael has all the power and money in the world, and Vito didn't here. So I think that's the huge difference. It's a tough question because I think a third possibility really arose in my eyes this time, and it's Tom. 
I'm almost wondering if in the family, certainly when you get given the title of consigliere council, mm-hmm. you're supposed to help with strategy and all things family related as the closest confidant to the Don. But watching Tom manage what little Mike gives him and somehow stay the course and come out ahead and play the different roles that he plays in the family as effectively as he does, I think he might be. Yeah. I don't know if he's most equipped to be Don because I think he's just too soft. I think he lacks the the drive, the edge. Yeah. I think if you put all three of these guys like together, you'd have like the perfect Don, right? Well, he's the <laughs> ransom's daughter to Tom Donovan and the family. Yeah. I'm going to handle this through a law book mm-hmm. or education, whereas sometimes you need the end of the gun. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I kept going back and forth on how would Vito handle this? How would Michael handle this? How would Vito handle this? And I think the closest we get to the contemporary problems that Michael faces in two is pretty singularly placed in one moment in the first film. And it's Virgil Salazzo's pitch to Vito about dealing drugs, specifically Mm -hmm. heroin. Yeah. The other problems are who's going to control the street corner Stop muscling in my turf. That's pretty small time stuff in the bigger spectrum of what Michael takes on. And I would have to argue, Jesse, that although Vito makes, I think, what we would consider the heroic choice as the hero Don, for lack of a better term, anti-hero Don, Mm -hmm. kind of backfires. Not only does he not get the money, it launches an all-out gang war. Mm -hmm. He ends up losing turf. It costs him a couple of his kids. Yeah. Does Michael make a mistake in this film or in the first film through right or wrong or moral or lack of morale morality? Does Michael make a mistake in his tenure as Godfather that is as disastrous as the one that Vito makes by telling for the right reasons, Mm -hmm. Virgil Salazzo? No. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think he's going to make a lot of mistakes in this, in this film that are going to, well, you said it so well now that this Corleone family by the end of this thing is, (laughs) down to two people. Yeah, right. <laughs> really, uh, yeah, the the mistakes and decisions may just spiral out of control. And to me, that's Michael's epitome in this, is just a man who's just out of control, who's hungry for power, but is willing to do whatever it takes to find those that betray him. It's He takes loyalty super seriously. Uh, I, can't, I can't wait to get into some of those little aspects, but... I think it's a treat to watch young Vito here, but kind of making his way. Uh, the second time we see him, like I said, he goes to this play. We are introduced to Don Finucci. He has to hide uh, some weapons for, we find out it's Clemenza. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love Bruno Kirby as young Clemenza. I think that's a great casting. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of get the first taste. I mean, it's like, it's a slow transition into a world of crime prior to, breaking into that house and taking that carpet. I don't think Vito's done a really bad thing his entire life. So I like that those around him influence him, but he also sees that in order for us to have any freedoms in this little two block quarter that we have, this Don's a huge problem. I mean, he's really stopping us and the people mostly for making a living and not being in debt to this guy. There are certain decisions you can make that build the strength of the character and really showcase what their their moral compass or their character design looks like. The fact that Clemenza would steal a rug 
to pay back veto for probably what are hiding hot guns as well mm-hmm. is so telling. It basically highlights Clemenza is kind of nothing more than a petty thief at that time. But the reason Vito, I think, says yes is not because he wants to show off to those that might come around. It's that that floor is probably warmer. Kids can play on it, not quite so dirty. Mm. And he likes it because his wife thinks it's pretty. Yeah, That's just really smart subtext character design on why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, from Puzo and all of the hands that were involved in this large, almost six hours of film that we've seen through two movies now. Mm-hmm. Understanding this is what makes this character tick. And let's be honest about this too. It's not like they have to do that for two characters. No, no. They've got to do that for Connie, mm-hmm. Sonny, Tom, Michael, Vito, and God bless him, John Cazale and Fredo. Yeah. That's really impressive to get. I mean, we like ensemble pieces. And when we sit down and write something that's like a team, yeah. we say, this is a strategic, strategist, this is the mystic, whatever we roles we give them. Yeah. They sat down and did that on a level of six yeah. where each one of those brothers and fathers and players is wickedly unique mm-hmm. and different from the others, but germane and completely consistent to themselves. Yeah. And it's moments like that. Yeah. I want this rug because it will make my wife happy mm-hmm. and my kids won't have to play on cold, dusty floor because Fredo has pneumonia. It's so simple. I think Coppola specifically, I think he really understood what this world was about and what these characters were about. At the end of the day, it's still all about family, right? And at least, at least for Vito. Yeah, for Vito it is. And I think for, it'd like to be for Michael, but he just can't. No, he can't well, keep the, it together. The antithesis is family for Michael. <sighs> it's his internal family with Kay. It's his struggles with his brother. It's trying to keep this crime family together, and it's just crumbling at the seams. I'm going to ask you a question now. I don't want you to answer it till the end of the film. Okay. Or show, which means we'll probably forget. <laughs> we do that every week. <laughs> I'll try to remember it. Of all the terrible decisions that Michael makes, and he makes good ones too, but for all of the decisions that Michael makes that end up going south, mm-hmm. is his biggest mistake or sin choosing K? Don't answer now. Okay. We'll talk about it at the end. Okay. It'll be post-nightcap, nightcap sure. two. Sure. Because I'm not sure how I answer. I want to answer that yet. Now, I know what I initially think right now, but yeah. let's see what happens, how the discussion goes over the next hour. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, here with Young V. Yeah, Fredo with pneumonia, and that probably beset him for quite quite a many years, and it probably led to him being fairly weak as a child, mm. not only health-wise, but mentally as well. <laughs> so I'm smart. Oh, I can do things. I'll play that later. It's a, gr- it's a great scene. Great scene. Uh, yeah, it, it's, and you see the seedlings with Clemenza and then Tessio. So th- th- they make a play, right? I mean... And I love the, the mustache, right? The mustache like comes later, but the mustache is part of the transformation to like slicked back on. I kind of yeah. like here early how he's still in suspenders with like a newsies hat and he's still kind of dressed fairly simplistic and he knows what needs to be done. And I like how he, he constantly tells Clemenza and Tessio, he's like, don't worry, I'll, uh, there's a way. I'm going to make him an offer. Uh, 
Ma se non ci reggi lucendo, non c'è niente da fare, vedi? Ha ragione io, coeggio. Ma se ti fare a me, a te che everything. Io ho risetto tutte le cose e ho bisogno di non dico mai alla misi me. I dici romani vogliamoci a parlare con Fannucci. Io dovevo domandare i soldi. E invece di capire che voi avete intenzione di pagare tutto quello che va domani, è senza discutere. E poi ci vado io, e mi ci sciasso io, io con i Non c'è bisogno che fate ingazzare che io sai se è così malangelino come decidete voi avete, no? Ma come fai tu a fare ci picchiare di meno? A voi avete non mi interessa. Ma solo ricordatevi che vi fissi un piacere. So they're talking about the debts they need to pay to Don Fanucci. He wants like 200 each from them and he's going to go and offer a lower sum. But like, here's the, here's the, the, the caveats with that. We got to applaud De Niro. He either learned to tell him for this or he knew it prior to taking this role, but he sounds amazing. And in a strictly Italian foreign film that he's in, in this little other bigger film, he sounds like what Marlon, a young Marlon Brando would sound. He looks like what a Mar- young Marlon Brando, Don Vito, would look like. This is kind of like his big break, right? Uh, this is, I think, Mean Streets is also the same year with Scorsese, and then Taxi Driver will be in two years. But like, this is like world. This is Meet De Niro. This is De Niro, right? You know, we talked about in the birds when you remove the visual from the bedroom rape scene, mm-hmm. and you just listen to the birds attacking Melanie's. Uh, yeah. vocal cues are semi-orgasmic. Mm-hmm. I'd never considered watching this scene, just listening to this scene, because it's all subtitled and I don't speak Italian, so why bother? Yeah. But what really just stuck out to me is where Tessio has very little to say and Clemenza is elevated or in a heightened state of anxiety with what he says, boy, the pantameter and the tone of De Niro is consistently calm, I got this, I'm in control. And so backing what you just said, he's a perfect young Vito because, again, I don't have everything square in my mind on this just off the cuff like this. I can't think of a time in the first Godfather, you know, one time, that we ever hear Vito raise his voice with the exception of when he's slapping around Johnny Fontaine. Yeah. The rest of the movie, he's the same tone. Yeah. Interesting what pisses him off the most, though, now that you think about that, too, yeah. is Johnny's not acting like a man and yeah. therefore kind of giving up on this idea of what role male plays in mm-hmm. his domesticated version of roles. Because yeah. the rest of the movie, whether Sonny gets shot mm-hmm. or Michael's um, in Sicily or who the hell knows, whatever. Yeah, it's never elevated or like lower. It's like the same same level, same level of emotion. It's and there you go. It's in that sound, too. I think I had told you last week, I think De Niro was in contention for the role of Sonny. Would you have rather seen him in that role, or is this pretty good for him? He can play hot-headed. There's no doubt. He plays hot-headed very well. <laughs> no, I'd rather think. I think he's better here. Yeah, I think so, too. This is, this is he, he would win the Oscar for best. This film had three Best Supporting Actor nominations, again, for him, Lee Strasberg, and for uh, Frank, uh, the hell is his last name? Pantagelio. Oh, yeah, that actor. Yeah, they were all Pantangeli. Pantangeli. Yeah, they were all nominated, and yeah, De Niro uh, went away with the Oscar for that one. What's shocking is Cazale wasn't. Yeah, right. Cazale made five films: Dead at Forty Two, 
Broadway actor, made five films. Every, the Conversation, Godfather 1, 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and uh, Deer Hunter. Yeah. Who, he was sick with cancer when he made The Deer Hunter. Every one of those five films was nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And he never won one. Yeah, but never, I don't even know if he was ever nominated. And we, you and I, yeah. recognize him as one of the all-timers, just not enough of a library of films to be recognized as such. The guy was so, so, so talented. Mm-hmm. Goddamn. Yeah. But Imagine you, that you make five films and every single one. It's like a, a master, to his agent. It's, it's like a masterpiece. God, good job, agent. Yeah. Or just good job. <laughs> it's like, yeah, just reading and just knowing like, yeah, this sounds pretty good. And a lot of it's, yeah, working with De Niro and Pacino, like they're integral in a lot of those. Think about how iconic that Fredo character is, Jesse. Mm-hmm. That term is used for the incompetent sibling sure. or understudy family member that will never be able to fulfill dad's shoes. Yeah. Uh, that's just a Fredo Corleone. That's that term has become such a part of lexicon mm-hmm. because not Michael, not Vito, not Sonny, not Connie, not Tom. It's Fredo. Yeah. I think there's a case to be made that that role <laughs> might have the longest staying power. Yeah. If you work yourself into contemporary lexicon, as just this staple of derogatory in, 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 incompetence. Ineptitude, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Man, Vito's amazing. Michael is amazing. Mm-hmm. I think Tom and, and Sonny are both equally good. I don't know if I would say they're amazing. Not They're amazing, not memorably amazing. Mm-hmm. But Fredo's the one that's referenced in this derogatory ineptitude way. It's pretty impressive. We talked last week, I mean, you counted four or five scenes that he was in yeah. individually. Here he gets his chance to shine. Boy. He's really good in this. We'll, we'll get to his character here in a little bit. I keep derailing you from this this theater bit, so with the play. So there's, I keep, you know. You, well, I, we're, we're, we're a little away from that. So now we're kind of just messing around with Don Finucci, and this is the moment, right? I mean, Don v, or Vito Corleone realizes if we can get rid of this guy, we can kind of make our own rules, kind of start our own way of living here that's not so tyrannical. And... I think he realizes the only way to get rid of this guy is if we kill him, if somebody kills him. And the way they do it here with this parade, uh, maybe it's 4th of July. I don't know what what, what kind of ceremony. You know what really tripped me out was that Jesus crucifix that had all the dollar bills tacked to him. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, but yes, he's stalking Don Finucci, and he's going to wait for him to slowly, because he's denied that offer. Uh, that he gave him. So now he's going to give an offer he can't refuse, which is death. Uh, waits for him in this little alcove on the top floor of this apartment building with a gun wrapped around a, a towel. And the flickering light like alerts him to his presence. And he just guns this guy down. And it's Vito having to take a life for the first time, his first act of violence. Uh, it's brutal. It's intense. Uh, and then the way I love the way he disposes of the gun, right? I mean, he breaks it up into a bunch of pieces and then puts them in different chimneys and different pipes there on the top of the building. That way, they'll never be able to trace it back to him. But it's a big moment for him. Him staying there in the doorway with the gun, with the flaming towel, is a transformation has happened. Birth uh, by fire, right? Yeah, by violence, forged and by fire. This mm. is going to be a different veto the next time we see him, and they've gotten rid of. A huge antagonist. It's kind of interesting. This guy's all in white, right? So pious, so pure, yet so evil and manipulative to mm. this. And I get the idea that Don Finucci's just really running. Pay me, 
double your rent, pay me property tax, get my nephew a job. He ain't doing anything like overly like prostitution or like racketeering, like anything crazy in my, what we see in the, on screen. So he he seems kind of like pretty low level type of Don who's still ruling with an iron fist. But the scene ends, I think just perfectly because it actually takes us to the intermission which man bring back the intermission because man i just i can't i i gotta pee during some of these long movies uh it ends with the family on the stoop there watching the parade and it's sunny fredo and then baby michael and he takes michael in his arms he's like michael you do padre loves you very much very much and he loved his son michael right like a lot and i think that's what makes the tragic downfall even that much more tragic because here's my question to you i was going to save this till we were talking about michael but this is probably perfect do you think don vito corleone would be ashamed of what michael's become at the end of this movie that's a good question because i think the answer is a pretty pretty big yes for me i think he would he would really look down on michael for a lot of the decisions that he's going to make specifically involved with fredo and the whole Hyman Roth operation, but so I'm going to say no, but I think we both have the same outcome on that. Mm -hmm. I don't think he'd be upset with Michael Mm -hmm. insofar as Michael's decisions. I think he'd be upset with Michael on what he's left, what state he's left the family in. Sure. I think that's where he would be ashamed or pissed off is that I left this you. And I don't, I don't think he would care about Genco olive oil incorporated. I don't think give a damn about that, but the state of the family at the end of the film so I get maybe that's a yes, but for a different reason other than business wise. So maybe we're in agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, no, there's no way he would be happy. Yeah. But the question then, do you think Michael, I'll give it back to you, okay. would tell his dad to pound sand? Not really, because he would never say that to his dad, but disregard his dad's advice because his dad never had one of his sons or brothers trying to kill him. And in this case, there's been two. Yeah. So- what about that? Yeah, I think yeah, I think that, that that might look a little differently in in in, in Michael's eyes. But. Would would Vito, if Vito was still around, okay. let's say in a consigliere role and not Don, as an advisor or retired advisor to Michael, okay. would he advise Michael to forgive Fredo mm-hmm. and let him go forward? Yes. Do you think that's the right course of action? Because Fredo's so stupid, in my opinion, he would do this again. Yeah, uh, I think it's the right, it's the moral course of action to take. Uh, he tried to kill his family. Yeah. And, you know, towards the end, again, this is the second part of the movie, I kind of get the idea that Fredo's kind of turning it around a little bit, trying to assimilate into the family a little bit more. It's the, it's the fishing stuff with young Anthony. Yeah. Really trying to make an effort because that moment where they embrace in the mom's funeral, I really believe that's Fredo trying to make amends. And Michael's already made his decision at that point. Right? Oh, it's Fredo trying to kiss up. But Michael, when he looks at Al, is saying, yeah, this means nothing. Yeah. Kill this fucker. Yeah, this is done. But I think it's Fredo released. I'm thoroughly trying to apologize for, for what I've done and what I've put you through. So, okay. But what about that? I mean, if it takes you... A failed assassination attempt and having all ties to your family essentially stripped away to realize the mistakes that you have made. 
to finally come back to middle and so far as being a good guy, mm-hmm. then I would say in the case of Michael, he'll forgive you because we see that happen with Connie. Yeah. But he's never going to forgive Fredo. Yeah. Is Fredo turning around because he's still in that moment even too stupid to still know this ship has sailed. I am I'm I'm history. I don't know if he he might be stupid enough to realize that actually, um, but I don't know. I just I've I've always really felt that like Fredo's really trying to make an effort to change a little bit at the end and not just go about backstabbing him. So the right decision is to forgive, and that's the Don Vito mentality: yeah, sure. is forgive, loyalty. He's family. Let's move past this. Can I defend Fredo for one other thing too? Yeah, here? go ahead. When we get the scene prior to the boathouse, maybe it is in the boathouse, where Fredo is sort of laid out on that chair. Do you have the sound for it? Do you want to do that now? Uh, We'll save it for later. As isolated or put on the periphery as Fredo was, giving us some Mickey Mouse nightclub in Vegas, Mm -hmm. or Fredo, you take care of the entertainment for our guests because you can handle the drink menu and the prostitutes of the area. Yeah. As put on the periphery of real business as Fredo has been, do we really think it's fair that when he gets the pitch from Johnny Ola and Hyman Roth, who are strategically miles, light years beyond anything Fredo's ever considered, yeah, that he gets caught up in that? I think so. You think like it's okay to forget? Like we can't really blame him, right? Yeah, you put yourself like- in that situation. You're way smarter than Fredo, Jesse. You would probably, may, or maybe. Well, let me say one more thing before I give you this back to you. Or maybe not, because there's one rule yeah. in the Corleone family. Don't betray mm-hmm. the family. The family. Yeah. So what is it? I don't know. I think it was just he he was given a pitch that was almost too good to be true. And I feel like Hyman Roth and Johnny Ola manipulated Fredo a little bit. For sure. And then, of course, the way Michael sees it is just, no, my brother sold me out. And there's only one path from that. Uh and it just it it's it seems to be getting even worse. But we'll save it for that scene because that's like that's the moment, right? I think where Michael makes his decision yeah. of the fate of his brother. But he, what I was getting at with this is that Don Vito really loves his son. The fact that they linger on him holding baby Michael and saying "I love you" is, and the the, the fact that they cut to intermission that's supposed to be half the movie, and then the other half is going to be now the downfall and the rise of Don Vito. It's a perfect way to kind of just get to that little midpoint there. And then the rest of the stuff with Don Vito is just him kind of upping his empire, helping people out here and here, starting the olive oil business, Jenko Olive, which is just a front for all of their nefarious mob intentions. Mm-hmm. But then later he does, he eventually goes and makes a trek back to Italy. Corleone sees, I think, his old grandmother. He brings her a little Statue of Liberty. Um, but he really came here to take care of business, right? And it's this moment with Don Ciccio uh, here that now I think the cycle's complete. I don't, the violence now from Don Vito, I think, will be done from other people's hands and not his. This is kind of the final time I think he's going to personally take a life. Uh, it's a great moment here. Como te quedas? Corleone. 
Mi pace si chiama Antonio Andolini e chi sto è Bazzi. Oh, arrivedio del bottone! It just takes a knife to the gut and then slices up. It's brutal. But this is the ultimate revenge, right? I mean, you blew away my mom, my brother, my dad in order for me to make things square with my own moral moral sensibilities. Don Vito had to do this at, at some point. But do you think it's the last? I, I really think this is the last time he killed a person. I do. Yeah. At this point, Tessio and Clemenza are full in the fold. And, you know, we bring Luca and... Frank Pantangeli and everybody else that mm-hmm. ends up being a soldier for them. I think you're right. This is it. Which, if it's only two, <laughs> compared to a lot of Dons, that's pretty darn good. That's the, then that's his influence and power is getting people... The peaceful Dons. Yeah, getting people around him to to do his bidding and do the dirty work. Um, with is lot- it Tessio that gets blasted? Or is that Clemenza that gets blasted outside Don Chicho's? I don't know who that is. I think that's some other guy. Whoever that is, he gets him up and gets him in the car. I've always wondered if that person, obviously Tessio and Clemenza live, so if it is one of the two of them. They walk it off pretty good. Dude, it's a shotgun to the kneecaps. <laughs> well, that happens in this film too because when we get back and see the, the failed assassination attempt of of uh, Frank Pantangeli, mm-hmm. his heavy, Chicho, uh, Cheech, he ends up, he ends yeah, up, yeah, Joe Spinelli. He ends up testifying before Congress. Yeah. He gets blasted and is left in the street. Yeah, everyone's getting blasted in this movie and somehow walking it off. <laughs> so you better do a couple shots. I think that's why the killing of Don Finucci is so great. Yeah. You know what I noticed this time? Mm-hmm. Okay, so after the two shots and Finucci slumps against the doorway. Yeah. Did you ever notice that his eye blinks? Yeah. He's still alive. Yeah. So that third one up the mouth. Oh, yeah. Oh, out the back. Yeah. Not blinking anymore. No, that's good. That's the kill shot. Mm. Did you notice, uh, speaking of Frank Pentangeli, did you notice who one of his little capos was? No. Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, he ends up being the FBI agent that kind of takes care of him. Exactly. I thought that was pretty cool. Guys that have that career in Hollywood, mm-hmm. whether it's like the first of the fodder of Alien or the dad of Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink or Cool Hand Luke's sidekick in prison, boy, Harry Dean Stanton made a career out of that role, didn't he? He had a pretty good career, I he think. He did? Yeah. To him, he passed away. Paris, Texas. Uh, yep. Christine escaped from New York. Oh. The guy was insane. What is he in Christine? Is he the dad? He's like the detective that comes and investigates like all the car murders and he like knows it's Arnie. Mm. Yeah. To him. Yeah, to <laughs> Harry Dean. Harry Dean. He's, he was never not good in like what he did. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the arc of Vito. It's coming from Italy, or uh, immigrant, orphan, to... Just guy working in the streets to in place Don to just really building that power to where we see him in the first Godfather. But I think the point is what I took away is everything was done with good intentions, with respect, with a moral clause, uh, a good natured guy that didn't like act on violence for violence sake. It was for very humane reasons is how he ruled his empire. So now when we flip the script and now go to 1950s Lake Tahoe with Michael, these are two totally different people from the same bloodline. And that's why this movie, I think, is so brilliant, is being able to see those side by side. And the way they fade into each other, right? Michael with his little boy in the bed uh, saying, did you like the picture I I drew for you? Yes, I liked it. And then they do a little crossfade to Vito looking at Sonny crying in his crib. It's It's perfect. Perfect. 
I can't believe people hated that when it came out. I mean, it just maybe they just didn't get it. I don't I don't know. But let's talk about the plot of this movie, Matt, because this thing is this thing is nuts. Okay. I love that we start with another celebration again. This is uh Holy Communion celebration for his son Anthony. We gotta talk about this little boy here a, l- a little bit later. Uh, but it's kind of another great way, much like the wedding in the first film, to really introduce uh, new characters and the returning characters. This uh, Senator, what's his name? Geary. Yeah, Senator Geary, who's coming in with attending this 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 event and the Corleones have given him a, a, a check, but then he has business as well. Uh, and it's he doesn't want to like give the the licenses and the, all this money because he just I think as he said he's like I don't care about you or your fucking family yeah ooh. it's like it's like who are you talking to have you seen the first film <laughs> Geary this is a death sentence I'm surprised he actually made it through to the end right yeah this is a guy that gets killed in the end montage too but. Michael doesn't waver. Like, whatever threats are levied toward him, I mean, I think you see the power just, like, seeping through his pores at this point. It's just like, my offer is to this is you. Nothing. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're going to pay for those licenses, and we're going to do this scot-free. Mm-hmm. And they end up hel- happen this, helping the center out in a jam later when he... Matt, what the fuck happens with that... Prostitute? Prostitute. What did he do? <laughs> sort of like the horse head bit but not this reminded me of seven yeah 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 uh i think they slip him a roofie mm-hmm. so he ends up on the floor yeah that's a joke from another movie <laughs> yeah and uh flories yeah flories and then they sneak in and i think butcher that particular prostitute and i think they've chosen her because according to tom hagan no mm-hmm. one knows who this girl is she doesn't have a family and what's really scary about that the reach. If you thought that the reach had maybe dwindled after the first film and they could never pull off another horse head sort of decapitation in the middle of the night, man, this is just on par with the same kind of idea. Not only are we going to get you high, but we're going to sneak in and we're going to butcher this chick. So she's not even worth it other than we need some leverage over you so that if anything comes up and boy, does it come up later because it saves them a lot of drama before that senatorial test, uh, senatorial committee. We can get to you. Yeah. Um, and and then he, he's going to owe them big time now, right? For this forever. This cleanup operation. <laughs> forever. Jeez. The, Tom- way, the way Coppola shoots that scene, too. I know this is a little ahead of where we're at right now, this uh, communion celebration. They're just talking in this room, and you're like, man, what's going on? This guy's really on the fritz, and he's freaking out. And then the camera just pans to the left and you see this like bloodied corpse like yeah. and it's just like oh my god what happened here yeah brilliant it's just you know coppola is just i i really the apocalypse now ruined the man i i know for sure because that was such a tumultuous production the guy's brilliant with the way he uses the camera the way he writes these characters and things aren't like intentionally just placed that's why i asked you about the empty chair like that means something in these movies mm-hmm. there's not just something there for shit's sake, like everything, the way things are revealed to us and told to us, I think are, are brilliantly executed by him. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, we're introduced to Frank Pantangeli. Say his last name again. Pantangeli. Pantangeli, which I think this was supposed to be Clemenza, but I think there was some issues with the original actor. 
not wanting to come back. He oh, wanted, really? He wanted more money. So I think this is supposed to be Clemenza. But they kind of make it an even in, more interesting character here. Uh, there's a little kind of throwaway piece of dialogue here with, mm -hmm. I'm sorry what happened to Clemenza. It was a heart attack. And then Joe Spinelli's like, that, that was no heart attack. Yeah, what happened there? Yeah. Just Michael killed off Clemenza too? It's yeah, The story that we're getting to is pretty complex. I mean, essentially it comes down to the Corleones have forsaken or given their holdings in New York to Pantangeli to run under the Corleone name. Yeah. They've moved entirely to Nevada and are looking at expanding the gaming industry. Now, where that gets messy is one of their partners, Hyman Roth, is backing the Rosado brothers in New York City, who is the rival gang of what remains of the original Corleone family and is trying to muscle in on their mm -hmm. turf. So back in New York, it's still essentially a turf war. Yeah. But if you're trying to partner with the guy who the other side of the, the continent is trying to undo your family, then not only do you have to be very strategic and cagey, but there's no way that's going to be a healthy relationship. Well, Michael tells him that too. He was like, yeah. I can't act on these brothers. Rosados. Because I'm about to go do business with Hyman Roth. Yeah. So if he knows I'm going to move on them, that's going to fall apart. So we got to do business with him, and then we'll slowly ease into that. And then what happens? It's a total clusterfuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so fucked up. I read somewhere that when Pantangeli is attempted, the, the attempted assassination of, Fr of Frank Pantangeli, mm. the line that Danny Aiello gives, tell uh, Michael Corleone sent me or whatever that Michael yes yeah was completely ad libbed. Really, that he just made that up. Kind of changes the context of the story, right? It does because it puts the seed of doubt in Pantangeli's mind on who wanted him executed. At this point, Michael thinks Frank Pantangeli has set up the assassination in his bedroom after Anthony's first Holy Communion. Yeah. So he barely survives that. The two assassinating agents kill themselves, so there's no way they'll get any truth out of them. And the rest of the film essentially is Michael while trying to finish off this dealing that I think has not only gaming ties, but legitimacy ties in there that have political aspirations attached on the back end yeah. has got to figure out who is the fox in the hen house. Mm -hmm. Who's the snake in my family? Who's the person that I can't trust because I almost was assassinated in my own bedroom. And this is a kind of process of elimination too. Mm. He thinks it's Roth. So he goes to Roth and is like, I think it's Pantangeli. And then he goes to Pantangeli and is like, I think it's Roth. Yeah. And the real rat is really Fredo yep. in this thing, but they're all kind of in bed together. Right. Like all of them. It's, 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 it's incestuous on like a, just like backstabbing point of view. And I really love it. <laughs> so, it's, so Pantangeli is an interesting one to me. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love, do you drunk Pantangeli? He's like, where's the can of peas? And then when he goes, he's like, ba -ba -da -ba -da -ba -da. and then they play Pop Goes the Weasel. And it's so just, hilarious. Oh, I love that moment so much. Yeah, it's great. Is Pantangeli, he's unhappy with Michael's decisions because while Michael is having to finish his business dealings with Roth and Nevada and Havana, Pantangeli is having to essentially stonewall the Rosado brothers because he can't go to full war with them while they're ready to do that with him. Yeah. It certainly painted him into a corner. Okay. That being said, obviously he's pissed off at Michael, but other than maybe squealing weasel, like after he's almost killed by 
Danny Aiello in that bar. Does Frank Pantangeli... Really? That's Danny Aiello? It is. Oh, wow. Does Frank Pantangeli... I think it might be his first appearance in film, too. Hmm. Does Frank Pantangeli ever really do anything physically aggressive against the Corleone family. I don't know. I don't know if he can. I don't know if he has the power to. I always feel like in this movie, he kind of gets a real raw deal. Yeah. So he's almost been killed. He's been shot. And the cops come in and he starts squealing. Okay, huge mistake. And then from that point, the Corleones choose to deal with Pantangeli as an enemy. This to me is one of the big question marks in Michael's decision-making process. Okay. If he does away with Pantangeli, then there is no Don to oversee the area that he's acquired in New York City. So not only does he have to vet and put someone in, but in the process of that doing, do the Rosados just take over? Because while there's a void, they're going to suck up that land. So, Well, let's talk about this because who does the... It's Hyman Roth that does the hit on Pantangeli, right? No, Pantangeli, Frank Pantangeli kills himself. No, 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 no. The, the shootout in the street with the... Oh, yeah. That's that's Roth. That's Roth with, yeah. if you believe what Aiello said, his ad-libbed under the, the guise of Michael sent us to kill you, winky, winky, even though we know it was Roth. So you're asking me if, if it'd be easier for Michael to just do away with Pantangeli? No, is this, a ter- is, this, is this the most grave decision that he makes? Is this a bad decision by Michael? Am I most grave? Is this a terrible decision by Michael? Yeah, totally. Terrible. Of uh, many dis- terrible decisions he's about to make in this film. Yeah, absolutely. When he brings Pantangeli's brother to the Senate committee. Oh, yeah, Jonathan Winters. <laughs> yeah, that no, is, it, it is Jonathan just, Winters. It looks just like him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And that's a veiled threat if you squeal, this guy's cur- this guy's dead. Yeah. Does that leave Pantangeli with nowhere to go with except being loyal to Michael? And isn't I, it maybe then better to keep him? I think, no, I, you're right. I think it does, yeah. Nowhere to go, have to rely on Michael. And then I think that's even more fucked up because I think Pantangeli's been around since... These early days. Clemenza's days. He gets name dropped in that dinner scene where they're having spaghetti talking about Don Finucci. So he's been around this family, I think, for yeah, you're right. 40 years. So why would I kill off an old family friend here that truly hasn't really done me wrong? Yeah, uh, yeah I think you're right. I think, yeah, Pantangeli's set up to fail. And then the way <laughs> Tom Hagen, like, essentially coaxes him into killing himself... <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Over a cigar and a story of history. Oh, it's so messed up. What do you think of this? Oh, well, let's talk about... Because Connie comes in. Connie has a new... Merle. Bo- boy toy, I guess. Uh, hasn't seen her kids in forever. And I love this like kind of awkward dinner they're having. Because look at the state of the family now mm-hmm. in this film compared to the family and the wedding. Yeah, We have Ma Corleone still churning along here. Connie with this new bow, Fredo and his wife, who's just a floozy, right? Yeah. Uh, Kay, who just looks like so, just like she's like, does not belong here at all. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Michael, who's just like, just looks so angry the whole time and just how everyone's acting. You have Tom, and I think like Tom, I think is Michael's biggest ally. And that's why I think this scene is pretty impactful. But it's, it's because I admire you and I love you. And I kept things secret from you. That's why at this moment you're the only one I can completely trust. Fredo, 
Uh, he's got a good heart. But he's weak. And he's stupid. And this is life and death. Tom, you're my brother. I always wanted to be thought of as a brother by you. Like a real brother. Kind of a big moment, especially when you think about the version that they have 2.0 of this conversation later in the film. Mm -hmm. Take your mistress and get the fuck out of here if you're not with me. Yeah. Well, you just continually see the de-evolution of Michael and the trust that he has with his family members because that's that's genuine. Yeah. And now you start to understand why he removed him from the position that he did in number one. Yeah. Because he wanted him out of any possibility of being involved in backstabbery or <laughs> this fuckery that's going on behind his back. Mm -hmm. So... Michael, in a sense, has chosen, I think, the most capable of his allies and rendered him useless, but for safety's sake, for his own well-being. And then think about how much he trusts. Yeah. If he's going to give the complete control of the family and his, like, bloodline family. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's a pretty impactful moment. And that's about the only time we see this from Michael in either of the two films. This yeah. is the only time. We get a little bit at the dinner, at the banana daiquiri bit with Fredo but not like this. This is the only time Michael really, really leaves himself vulnerable and open the entire two movies. I'm going to say this right now. That I think this is the best place to say this. And this is, I'm showing my hand here for my master distiller. I think Al Pacino's performance in this is my favorite acting performance in film history. Wow. Ever. I think it's just, it's so nuanced. I mean, we said last week, like, Oh my God, contain contained Pacino is actually really good. Like, look at a moment like this, and then he's going to have moments later in the film where he's just going to totally, like, go off, like, lose his mind. Mm -hmm. And he's good in that, too. I mean, the the roller coaster that Michael takes in this film, the arc of his character, man, it's all Pacino. It's all body language and facial features. Later, when we get the abortion revelation, mm. I watched that scene at least three or four times. His face... Yeah. The way it transforms from surprise to anger to fury to rage is acting. And we, we did that bit last week, remember, before the murder of Salazzo where he's kind of doing his eye. Yeah, yeah. Look, trying to look everywhere but the target, right? I love the way his lip trembles once Kay tells oh, him. Oh, yeah. Starts yeah, gosh. Quaking just with anger. Pacino's on another level of acting in this thing. And yeah. he was a student of Strasburg. Mr. Lee Strasberg. Okay, well, you just took away my question. Yeah. Having Strasberg yeah. and his method acting coach on set, mm -hmm. did that squeeze every bit of fine performance out of these people? It, or, could, it could have, yeah. Because, I mean... I can't imagine Strasberg didn't have a couple of lines of maybe we should try this or this, or here's how you maybe really emote this character this way. Yeah. That's crazy that, that he's in this film. Mm -hmm. One of his few acting roles with his prize winning star. And he's good in this thing. So all the stuff, like first time I saw this, I, the, the part of this film that really killed me that just like 
almost flatlined it for me was all this stuff in Cuba and Havana, but it's actually kind of become some of my favorite parts of the movie because mm-hmm. that's where everything really starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And all these deals that they're going to use the kind of the Cuban government as the front for this operation that they're going to do. But meanwhile, Cuba, real life Cuba is in the midst of like a power overthrow. Mm-hmm. How <laughs> I love that. The, the, the new year's scene where like, New Year's, everyone's excited and kissing everybody. And then the president goes up and he's Resigns. like, I resign, kills the mood completely. And everyone's like, we got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, and they immediately start destroying the casino and try to raid the embassy and all hell breaks loose. Yeah, people trying to get on boats because it's Fidel time, right? <laughs> so, yeah, your brother's on the run after you told him that you know he was behind the hit. All the money that you've invested in your business plans have just gone up in smoke. The person you're in bed with as a partner is now clearly involved in the destruction of your family. There's $2 million that God only knows where it's gone because whatever political regime that's taking over is not going to honor that. Mm-hmm. All hell's breaking loose in the streets and you're just praying you can get in a taxi and get to a flight and get out of there. Yeah. You want to talk about second act reversal. Yeah. As bad as things were, they are, they've gone to hell in a handbasket now. Fredo just runs away to God only knows where. Well, it's a bad deal. It's it's a bad it's a bad everything. And New Hymenroth is like in various stages of dying this entire movie. Uh, but what do you think of the reveal? I mean, that that's the moment, right? That's the, the kiss. That's the re- the reveal of when is Michael going to figure out who the rat is? And the audience has been let in on that a little bit earlier mm-hmm. with Fredo in bed, his oh. black silk sheets. <laughs> yeah, gets that call from Johnny Ola saying. We're going to cut. And he's like, don't do call here ever again. And the way they do it, you're like, oh, fuck. Like, it's Fredo's the rat. Yep. So then when they're in Cuba and Johnniola rolls up and Fredo's like, oh, yeah, I've never met you before. But then when they're seeing that crazy, I don't know. Sex show. Sex show. The BDSM, like, torture, like Havana voodoo voodoo show. Uh, let's on. Do, like a, a line of drop dialogue of, yeah, Johnny Ola, he took me here before. Michael's just like, son of a bitch. Like, right? Like the, the moment, the realization of it's you. It's I, it was right under my hand, my own family, my own flesh and blood. Like he did this. He doesn't have a line. It's the same thing you said earlier. It's you watch his face run the gamut of emotions from shock to realization to anger to consequences in about 35 seconds. You see him go, oh my God, it's Fredo. Now, it's Fredo at the behest of who? Because Fredo could never pull this off on his own. Mm -hmm. But Fredo's the one that broke his heart. Yeah, great. I was very happy that this house never went to strangers. First Clemenza took it over. Now you. My father taught me many things here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. There's a plane waiting for us to take us to Miami in an hour. Don't make a big thing about it. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. So that classic line, him talking with Pantangeli. Pantangeli. 
my father told me to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. But when your real enemies, your own flesh and blood, I mean, what do you do at that point? It's a big moment. I think everyone remembers that like kick smooch on the lips. Right. Yeah. And just like, I knew it was you Fredo and you broke my heart, mm. but I don't think that's the moment when he's just like, I'm going to kill you now. I think there's some forgiveness there because when they're trying to escape, when Havana's going up in flames, he's like, Fredo, come with me. It's the only way out. And Fredo just scampers off into the night. I go back and forth to that because I want to believe with you, like maybe there's a hope that Michael can get past Fredo. But I always go back to thinking about what happened with Carlo. Yeah. And the way he sort of kind of forgave Carlo. And I don't want to say befriended him, but acknowledged where things were at and this is the end only to like have him let his guard down and then get choked out in the car. I don't think he's going to choke out anybody in the car. Cause Michael wouldn't carry that out. So his, his people are paid so handsomely for or not handsomely for. And that's why they decide to make their own side deals with other family members. I, I I've never been able to quite come to a decision on this. I want him because Fredo is, as Connie says, sweet and helpless yeah. and does seem to genuinely be a pretty good uncle and just wants to be the party guy and fishing guy. And like that uncle, like, mm-hmm. let's go to the baseball game. Uncle Fredo will take you like that guy. Yeah. And I, I think Anthony needs that because Michael's really busy. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say, though, is there forgiveness in Michael when it comes to not only the possible assassination of himself, but the rest of his family? And then you put that snake in your den I don't know, Jesse. I go back and forth. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think there might be. There might like be. A, there, sure, there might be. A twinge of, of, of hope there, but there's some other things that are going to come along down here pretty soon that are just going to completely ruin that. What do you think about, okay, so on top of all this, okay, the Hymenroth thing is just going up in flames. I don't even, what are they even getting into? Or is it more casino stuff? Or, yeah. Yeah. So there's that, that birthday scene where Roth says, as I'm getting ready to die, this is how I'm going to divvy up my estate. And some other families get mentioned, but the, I think the Corleones are going to keep the Capri. So they will have controlling interests in Hyman Roth's ownership in anything that he has in Vegas. And they'll take over that casino in Havana. If you have a casino in Havana and you can launder just about anything you want through that stateside insofar as you can get it through customs and back up back stateside. It really puts him in a position of power that Michael has become now a global icon tycoon. And all that it's going to take is a $2 million investment to the controlling political interests for he and Roth as a show of good faith that the partnership between him and Roth is solid enough that Michael's willing to venture $2 million. And that's the sticking point. Three times in the film, Roth asks Michael, did you give the $2 million? And Michael says, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Not all the time, but it's a version of that. And it's becoming an issue for Roth. He doesn't have long, we think, to live, although he's been dying of the same heart attack for 20 years, according to Michael. I don't think Hyman Roth is going to die anytime soon. He's, he's almost been dead for, like you said, 20 years. So it's well, not just... They, they try to have him killed too. Right, so they try to have him killed. And Roth is trying to have Michael killed at the same time. That's not the actions of a man who's on his dying breaths. 
That's yeah. the actions of a man who still feels like he's got some more cards to play and some more power. Yeah. Um, what's crazy about that birthday scene is Michael brings up sort of offhandedly an assassination or a sacrifice of a bomber, a rebel, and a police chief. So while all of this political upheaval is going on in Cuba, the Corleones on the Ross are trying to hammer down an agreement with one of the controlling parties. Meanwhile, these rebels are just going crazy and running amok and just guerrilla warfaring all over the place. Michael uses this as a moment that gives him pause in the deal that he and Roth are supposedly going to enter into with the Cuban government. Michael doesn't give a shit about that, Jesse. He's just trying to tread water long enough to figure out what the hell's going on. I think this is another one of his monumental mistakes. If he would just go in with a $2 million, I think all cards would be revealed and he'd be able to understand exactly yeah. what Roth is doing. Yeah, everyone, everyone's just being so sneaky snake the whole time. Right. Roth and Michael. And yeah, if you just lay it all out there, like let's be partners. And it just it just all gets messed up because everyone's so suspicious of everybody. Oh, you tried to backstab me. You tried to backstab me. And I'm going to backstab you and I'm going to kill you and you're going to kill me. And Well, welching out a $2 million deal is also pretty backstabbery. And that's a good way for you to get killed. And on top of that, to make this even more confusing, like the U.S. government decides to do an open investigation on the Corleone family and their mafia ties. Yeah. Just Michael must be so stressed. I mean, he just must be like, this deal's falling apart. I'm being investigated. My own brother tried to kill me. My wife had a miscarriage, mm. in quotes. Dude, God, this guy's just like, he must be like having ulcers or something. Like, he's just like got to be like, he's dealing with it from every angle here. How do his you home, sleep? Yeah, his home life, the family's crumbling apart. His, his elderly mother's about to die here in just a little bit as well. There's like no win for this guy here uh, coming up, like at all. But I think that's why the second film's so good. Is like, we got to show this person at the lowest of the low. And man, we're going to take him to some low, low places here, but... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. With the exception of the sex show that Fredo yeah. takes them to, mm-hmm. I think Michael in that scene is drinking a Cuba Libre. Yeah. There's a lime on it. The liquid is darker. Fredo mentions Cuba Libre. It feels kind of like a party drink. The rest of the time, Michael drinks club soda with lime. Him drinking club soda with lime, is that because he is so hyper-vigilant about all of the forces that may be in opposition to him that he can't have his intellect even dulled by a glass of wine? Yeah, he's paranoid. The whole time. Yeah. See, like we talked about that, or I talked about that earlier, right? Yeah. The moments you decide, like the little subtextual moments you do in film to help round out the character. I want this rug because it's really pretty and my, my, my wife will like it and my kids won't get cold. Mm-hmm. I can't drink because if I even have a sip of liquor, I might have this edge rounded and that might be the difference between living and dying. Mm-hmm. So simple. Yeah. But so three dimensional on how that plays on screen. Yeah. He's so paranoid. Whereas Don Vito, I could never see him getting paranoid like this because he'd be so in control of the situation. Right. Even he knew not to go into dealings with Salazzo because it was going to be bad business. Uh, that was a smart move. It was just they had one up on him. They were going to assassinate him at the same time. Yeah. 
Here's a little nugget of just something I picked up on. We have this whole theme of family going on through these films. And have you ever just kind of noticed in just the background sound of these mob conversations or if it's a funeral or I noticed it specifically when Vito and his wife are talking to that woman with the dog that is being evicted from her apartment in the background. You always hear like kids playing, uh, running around the house. Like we're doing mob business, but there's still like this family element at play in the sound design. Yeah. It's good. I, I think I'd say you're right though. And it's in the, the 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 first movie too. Like just like there's kids there, there's just like this family dynamic vibe even when they're not in the scene. You even just, Clemenza don't hit the kids on the way out. Yeah, you hear it in the background. Mm-hmm. It's it's very just in the shadows, but I think it it just it makes this feel more homely. Mm. We're doing terrible things, but the kids are still playing like kids are being kids. Papa never talked Dennis. Papa never talked business at the table. Yeah. Like there are sanct places in this family, the dinner table's one. I think that's genius. I think I that this Coppola just like I'm. I'm just gonna infuse the family theme in this, even when they're not present. Yeah, I really picked up on that in this film specifically, mm-hmm. but noticed it in the in the last film as well. I just wanted to bring that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got this moment. We've alluded to this a little bit. Uh, this is this is this is big. You believe that story? <laughs> You believe that? He said there was something in it for me. On my own. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taken care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this. Send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. Is there anything... You can tell me about this investigation. Anything more? The Senate lawyer, Kristat. He belongs to Roth. I don't want you near my house. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance so I won't be there. You understand? That's the line that always kills me. This is what gives me pause on the redemption of the relationship between the two brothers. It's it's similar to what he tells Carlo. Now, there's certainly a more long-term relationship than he had with Carlo. Yeah. If Michael has really taken his father's advice to heart, which is keep your friends close and your enemies closer, 
then knowing that Fredo wouldn't be able to orchestrate this attempted assassination on his own, I can see the rationale for Michael making Fredo think that we're good so that I can get squeeze every drop of information that I think is worthwhile out of you. And when I'm done with that, it's curtains. I want Michael to forgive Fredo, even though Fredo's an ass. Yeah. It's just that scene makes me think, I don't know if he was ever going to let him get all the way back in or not. Well, this is the moment I think in the film, I think this is where the decisions been made. Yeah. Uh, Cause the way Fredo kind of paints it, it was like, I was stupid. I got duped. I got like, they said they were going to do one thing and then they, they did something else. Like, it's just, they said they were going to give me a piece of the pie, something for me, Mike. Uh, and I think Michael's just kind of testing the waters a little bit. And so when he says, is there anything about this investigation I should know? And he's like, yeah, the guys they're working for Roth. And that's kind of why this is happening. Like, so he kind of knows Michael knows like, Fredo's in a little deeper than he's he's letting on. Knows a little bit more than he's willing to let forth come come to the truth. And I think that's just that moment where he's just like he can't he can't be around because somewhere around here is where he tells Al, right? Yeah. Nothing happens until while my mother's still alive. Mm-hmm. Immediately. Yeah. I think that's I think this is a telling scene that this is the moment where they draw the lines and that that line where he says, I want to know if you mm-hmm. visit our mother. I want to know a day in advance. That way I'm not going to show up there. If that's the case and and this is playing out the way you said, and I think there's yeah. a, a definite possibility that that's, that's the truth. And we could argue the other way too, but mm-hmm. is the final nail or the straw that breaks the camel's back, the failure from Ray, from Fredo to neglect all of the things that Michael has done for him. Fred, I've always taken care of you. And then is that what finally, like you can try to kill my family and maybe I can get back. You can lie to me and maybe I can get back. But if you now then have forsaken 20 years of care that I've provided and love that I've given you, there's nothing left. So I'm going to squeeze you. I'm going to ring you one more time to get the last little bit of juice out of you. That's information. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Because then that line, I mean, he knows that Fredo's backstabbed him already. Mm-hmm. It's just the knife wound is a little bit deeper than maybe he thought it was yeah, with the backstab. I, th- I think so. Yeah. But then when he says, I don't really give a shit about what you've done for me, Michael, I wanted my own piece. Mm-hmm. Maybe also huh? that's, I'm not going to be better because I still don't have a piece. I've still gotten respect. And by God, I'm going to try to get it somehow. So I may do this to you again. Well, I think that's Fredo and his intellectual inadequacies pleading to not be the blunt of the joke anymore. I mean, just not wanting to be the idiot of the family. Like here was an opportunity for him to like truly have his own stake on something that wasn't given to him or this and that. So he took him up on that opportunity. It just happened to be that they were going to try to kill his brother. It's just, it is a stunning statement about his mental capacities too. Cause think about this. Mm-hmm. Michael is about to pull off the kind of deal that's never been done in the Costa Nostra circles, mm-hmm. this thing with Hyman Roth. And Fredo is so stupid, he can't see that he's about to be second prince to an absolute empire and instead wants to be traded from, um, what's the most dominant sports franchise right now? Give, um, let's say, ugh, I hate this example, but let's say, Kobe Shaq era Lakers oh, and being like, don't hate that. <laughs> being like Lamar Odom on that team. Yeah. 
or Pau Gasol on that team or whatever one of those other side players of the Lakers were yeah. and asking to be traded from them. Dude, Rick Fox. Okay. Okay, Rick Fox. <laughs> okay. Let's say you're Rick Fox and asking to be traded from going to have multiple pieces of hardware on your fingers yeah. to like the fucking Mavericks. Yeah. Or like, who was dog shit back then? The Bucks. Uh, yeah, the Bucks or the Grizzlies. Terrible back yeah, then. Yeah. That That's essentially what he's asking for. Yeah. I would rather have a piece of the Memphis Grizzlies non-existent pie than a small sliver of this Lakers dynasty. Yeah. You're an idiot, Fredo. Yeah. Stupid. And he is. That's been established. I mean, I think that's part of it is just his intellectual inabilities to decipher what's being given to him. That's a loaded scene written wise and performed brilliantly well by two absolute masters. Oh God, it's brilliant. Because all I had to be a Strasbourg student too, yeah? I don't know. Did it feel like it though? It could have been. I don't know where he got his acting experience. If it was on the stage, Broadway first, yeah, something. But yeah, brilliant, absolutely. And just you hear in the background, just the sloshing of water because mm-hmm. they're by the boathouse. It's cool. All the details. It's just it, it makes it, it makes this just like a total sensory experience. You just got to be like listening and paying attention to everything. With this investigation goes tits up for the investigators uh, when Michael brings a star. He brings Pantangeli's brother from the old country here, and it makes him have a change of heart to not squeal, right? It's a pretty powerful moment, too, and just something that's just, it's just another roadblock in this endless roadblocks for Michael. But the big one's coming, uh, and I know that you've been waiting to talk about this, so let's get there. You wanted to talk about, you know, Fredo, four or five scenes in the first Godfather? Dude, Diane Keaton's barely in this movie. Three scenes? I think. The beginning, her wanting to go get groceries, being in the background of the investigative scene. Okay, so, yeah. Maybe five. Maybe. But it's this moment here where she's going to bring to the table, which is this miscarriage. She had the baby, or that that she's pregnant. Is it going to be a male heir? That way I can continue on this legacy. And then she gives him this stunning revelation, this heated argument about just like, she's leaving. She's going to take the kids. She's done with this. She, you said this business was going to be legitimate in, in five years. It's seven years later, eight years later. I'm done. I'm done with this way of life. I don't fit here. I'm taking the kids with me. And Michael's like, shit, you're going to take the kids away from me. Right. Uh, I got to ask you this though, because Michael's really hung up on this male heir to pass on the lineage of this Don. Why doesn't, is there something wrong with his current son or does he just need to have multiple in case they get killed off? Trying to emulate his father. He's still two sons short. And I think he's trying to do it. That makes sense. That's, that's what I've, that's yeah. I just wonder, cause even in the next, next week's film, like it, he, there's never like some Supreme power seat for Anthony, mm-hmm. which is where build him up. He's there's your, there's your heir. Mm-hmm. If you got one, you have two kids. I mean, there's the one. I always kind of wondered why Anthony's always kind of given the back seat here. If he's already established Michael that he's not strong enough to take on, I don't know. Michael has already told him when he tells him I'm leaving and thank you for the drawing that someday you are going to help me. He's already set out a path for him. So you're right. Why does he need more other than I guess in that it's world, a violent world, a couple yeah. of them are going to die. So yeah, you better have several possibly. Uh, I'm going to play the clip. We'll talk about it. This is, this is something else. I know you blame me for losing the baby. Yes. I know what that meant to you. I'll make it up to you, Kay. 
I swear I'll make it up to you. I'll... I'm gonna change. I'll change. I've learned that I have the strength to change. And you'll forget about this miscarriage. And we'll have another child. And we'll go on. You and I. We'll go on. Oh. Oh, Michael. Michael, you are blind. It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. An abortion, Michael. Just like our marriage is an abortion. Something that's unholy and evil. I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. It was an abortion, Michael. It was a son, a son, and I had it killed because this must all end. I know now that it's over. I knew it then. There would be no way, Michael, no way you could ever forgive me. Not with this Sicilian thing that's been going on for 2,000 years. You won't take my children. You won't take my children! You're my children. Brutal. We can talk about how stupid Fredo is. Yeah. She's got him beat. What does she possibly think is going to happen other than she's going to get killed? I know. This is... With this. She's going to outdo him... She should have taken this se- this secret to the grave, right? Oh, like, yeah. She, she shouldn't have, like, revealed this. But at, in the throes of the heated argument, she was just like, you know what, you fucker? Like, mm-hmm. here's what really happened. And then, like, we talked about Pacino. His demeanor, the way it changes throughout her revelation here is remarkable. But she, I think this is her realization that she doesn't belong here, right? I mean, I think in the last film we were wondering, like, God, she, she doesn't fit in this family. She's Kay. What a boring name. And mm-hmm. she just doesn't fit the vibe of the Corleone family. Mm-hmm. And God, dare I say, I think she finally realized it. Something in between here, all this shit with the Senate and all these investigations and almost getting gunned down in your own bedroom. This ain't for me. But I can't. I, I'm taking the kids with me. They're a part of me. Michael's like, no, they're a part of me. God, what do you think of all this? It's like, this is this is insane. I'll never forget that slap he gives her. That's just he th- he had to have said, Diane, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you. I'm gonna are deck you, you. Are you okay if I hit you for real? And she had to have said yes because there's no way that's fake. No way. Uh, brutal, absolutely brutal. From when she was so enamored upon our first meeting at the family and the way it did business in red, in red, yeah. at the wedding smiling, enjoying the food, meeting Johnny Fontaine to where we are now. She's come a long way and she's had several opportunities to get out. And the truth is, I don't think Michael was all the way good with having her in. I mean, I'll give you Apollonia and Apollonia has got a much different take to all this. And we like Apollonia. Mm -hmm. Kay's been hateable in this film since she was whining, would you like me more if I was Ingrid Bergman? And the answer is, abs- I'd like you more if you were Lana Turner. Yeah, I'd like you more if you were the street sign. She's hateable. She's whiny. I don't think Diane Keaton 
as much as she doesn't look like she would belong, can't match Michael at all. And what I mean by that is, chemistry-wise, they're a poor fit done on purpose. And that's good casting and good acting. And Diane Keaton is doing a really good job of being Alice Tripp in a a movie. And this was the inspiration Mm -hmm. for the flight question tonight anyway. Yeah. When we see her again, she's trying to get Anthony to tell her goodbye. And he won't give her a hug. And Connie's like, get out of here. He's coming. And freaking Pacino walks in looking like a million bucks. Yeah. That red wool button-up Henley, those black slacks, that beautiful. It's my it's my most favorite look of a male in film ever. God, he looks so good. Yeah. And that that nude camel-colored trench yeah. peacoat yeah. with that matching scarf. Fuck, he looks good. Yeah. I mean, we can take all of the Armani suits that they put together for the Untouchables. Yeah. He looks so yeah. someday I'm gonna look like that for one moment. <laughs> God damn, he's handsome. Yeah, winter, winter out. I wouldn't and I would yeah. never say Al Pacino's handsome, but damn, he is like yeah, he's smoke got, show. He's got it going on, yeah. 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 And you look at her and she's got that plaid button up and she just looks homely. And I love that she's having this conversation in this scene with Michael in these expensive clothes that this lifestyle has provided her. Mm-hmm. It's such a statement about what an idiot and hypocrite this woman is idiot that you think you can abort your son's child and he's going to be okay with it. And her, she thinks the outcome of this is we're finished as a couple. No, you're probably finished as a human being. (laughs) She is so stupid. Damon Wayne say in the last boy scout, how would you like to leave planet earth? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it's 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 stunning. It's I know I know why she wants to do it too. Is to stick it to Michael because this everything that's transpired and revealed itself during the course of these two films now is nothing. What she he's just lied to her constantly, right? Yeah, one lie after another. He's lying on the stand to the people. But he, he does do that it. to keep her safe. No, I, I, think. I, I know. Yeah, I, I, or does I, he do that because he doesn't trust her? It's security. It's trust. It's she. It's the door closing, right? Yeah. That's your world. This is my world. Because they ask him, did you kill the five families? And he's like, no, I did not. Yeah, shit, yeah, you did. Uh, but I think this, she just can't take it anymore. She she wants an out, and she thinks this is the out. But what does Michael do after the end of this? He takes the kids, and then we get that scene back at Tahoe where she's, like, sneakerly visiting the kids. and Sneakerly, call- I like that. Yeah, did you like- just make that up? I've heard that before, oh, okay. but it fits this. Yeah. S- sneakerly uh, visiting the kids and uh, Connie's like, you got to get out of here. Michael's just mm-hmm. around the corner. And mm-hmm. I love it. It's just like, it's the little kid like Anthony kiss, t- kiss me. Goodbye. It's like a, a little whining. Kid. Kiss, yeah. kiss, kiss your mother. Goodbye. Yeah. Just like, just something, something. And Ugh. then you're right. Michael shows up in the doorway and he's just like, yeah, it looks like a million bucks. And what does he do? Closes the door. On just closes the door. So if the first film was the closing the door on the business side, Michael's closing the door on the domestic side now. Yes. She's out. Yep. You're not going to see these kids because I have the power and the authority to make that happen. Brutal. That's the last time we see her in the movie too, right? That's her last scene. Good. Uh, and yeah, it's. Uh, I'm curious to see because I, I remember very little of kind of that relationship in this next movie going forward. And they're obviously older and whatever try to amends they try to make i'm curious to see like kind of how that how that goes about me too but 
this is intense. Uh, this is just something. And just think of it, abortion and then heavy Catholics, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the antithesis, 50s Catholic. It's just like, you just don't do this. And even her comments, like, this, just like this marriage is an abortion. That's not a thing. Like, it's not what? Aberration, maybe. Not an abortion. Like, she, God, she sucks. She is so hateable to me in this. She should I read. get it. I get it. Like, she's with a guy that is playing a different game than what she signed up for. But, man, they do a good job of writing her as hateable. Yeah. I think that's the intention. Yeah, they do it. And I'll give her just the, the benefit, too. Dude, Pacino can't slap her like this either, right? I mean, right. that's just like a no-go. No, area. no, yeah. And it's just, that, that's just brutal. You won't take my children. Boom, Dexter. And then just Michael's on the downward spiral at this point. I mean, it's this, and then it's all the stuff with Fredo coming up. Be, has he had the conversation with his mother yet where he yeah. asks her about family? Yeah, because she's still alive, yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's a really telling moment in there when she says, you'll never lose your family. Mm-hmm. And his response is, times are changing. The reason that that conversation stuck out with me so much is Michael has tried to build his empire in the image of his father. Number one, he admired him, so why not? Number two, I think by all means, it was a fairly successful run that his father had. Not to say there weren't some moments, but mostly it was pretty successful. Look at the power position that they're in today. But where his father based a lot of the decisions he made on family and what was best for his family, and I don't mean like crime family, I mean blood family. When the mom says you'll always have family, I think it's a very stark reminder to Michael about how important that used to be, how far away that's gotten. And his response, times are changing, is his acknowledgement of kind of the way it's been for him the whole film, which was, I have to do this alone, where all of the other Dons had family or support. I feel like Michael really in the entirety of both these two films is a man alone. Yeah. And the question then comes up with Anthony. If he brings Anthony in the fold, is he doing what Vito was afraid was going to happen to Michael? Cause they had that discussion, which I'd never wanted this for you, Michael. Yeah. If Michael brings Anthony into this, then he's cursing him with the same fate that Vito cursed Michael with. And here's where it gets even scarier. As we get further along in the time or the history or the story of America and the level and the volatility of crime goes up, what is he cursing him with? Yeah. So if Vito based his idea and his governance of the Cosa Nostra on family and Michael's trying to keep that together and the family's already broken, then what is he giving... Anthony as the template. It can't be family anymore because it's over. Is it destruction? Because that's Michael's thing. If Vito is family, Michael is destroy all of my enemies. And Tom even said so. You can't destroy everyone all the time, Michael. And Michael's is one to bet. So if he gives Anthony that, Jesus Christ, what is Anthony's version of the Corleone family look like? But watching these moments, I think there's three of them in this film. If you include Vito looking out the window at the Statue of Liberty in quarantine. Yeah. The closing shot of this film, Michael sitting in his father's same kind of styled uh, garden, pondering. Loaded ending, yeah. And then this bit where we go from him and his mother having a conversation both facing opposite directions, mm-hmm. done on purpose. Yeah. One going this way and the other going the other way. And then we pan back and tight just on Michael by himself. You are getting a very clear message from Coppola. This guy is 
is on his own. Yeah. Now, good news him, I guess. Connie's going to come back into the fold. I don't know how much we can really trust Connie. Kind of let him down a lot, but... A little bit at the end, I kind of feel like she's... She's legit, she's, right? She's changing a little bit as well, like trying to like get on the good side again. The problem, though, with Connie, Jesse, and it's the rules that this film have set up, is it's a woman. Yeah. And they have a role, but it's pretty much the bedroom and the kitchen. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's the two places that I think that they feel like they're safe. Um, can we... Can yeah. we, I know we just finished talking about her. Can we talk about Kay one more time? Yeah, sure. Because you brought up in just our conversations, you brought up Breaking Bad. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think the modern juxtaposition to this character would be Skylar White. Urgh. Anna Gunn's character, which is in the midst of Walter White's drug empire. She's like the one roadblock that's like really questioning and holding a lot back. And there's one moment in that show that really sticks out to me. And it's, it's very K like, and it's very antagonistical. And it's when Walt's got his cancer diagnosis and mm-hmm. he's kind of come to his own personal decision of, I would rather spend two good years with my family than spend my life tied to tubes, going undergoing chemo, being sick, uh, doing, doing all that. And she's, I think in a way, very selfish and think about your family while think about leaving something behind for them. Meanwhile, he's already trying to cook meth and leave something behind for them actually. But in that moment, I think he makes a very informed decision of, I want to do this on my terms. It's my cancer. It's my own decision. Why are you having such over influence on how I want to live the last years of my life potentially? And, uh, Dude, he wants to go out like Tony Scott, right? I mean, you find out you have cancer, just jump off a bridge. It's That's the thing with Kay, right? I mean, yeah. it's these elements that I don't understand your world or your rationale or your reasoning. Therefore, I don't fit into it. Yeah. Skylar then is going to weed her way into trying to fit into that, but that's going to ultimately just be a, a big roadblock. But I, they're very similar. Vince Gilligan had to have been a very big fan of this film, I think. It's a good catch. You're yeah. right. I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. One of the staples that goes along with mafia films, I think, is that even though they're married, they always have a mistress. Yeah. Maybe the soldiers don't, but mostly like the capos and, and the bosses, they do. Yeah. Is it an oversight? Is it a character statement? Is it there's already enough in this film, so why put one more thing in it? Why is it that Michael doesn't take a mistress? I wonder that actually, and it's, it, it might be the film's already too jam-packed with subplots that that would be just be another element. I wonder if in the book he does. I don't know. You've never yeah, read the book. I, I've never, I've never read it. Yeah. One of us is going to, I guess I'm volunteering myself to tackle that. But a lot of I'll this. I'll have it done by next weekend. A, a lot. Of, <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of this is spec. Most of this second story is Coppola and Puzo just expanding on what was already established. I think it would work pretty well. I mean, that's just another element of like Mm -hmm. that world that makes sense. Uh, Because there's no mention of a mistress in the third film either, is there? No, you dude, Michael could get anybody probably. (laughs) Yeah, right? Uh, I just, the film's so busy, I don't know if it has time for it. Uh, It's just, and I don't know if that makes 
I don't know. It would probably make him more hateable, which you probably want your film to, you want Michael to just be as low as low at the end of this film, which is where we get to, but. Or it enhances Kay's character even more so. Yeah. There's, for me, a, a, and a place in the sun opportunity here. Sure. And that is, like I said, we're going to do that movie someday. But when Alice drowns in that film, there's a piece of everyone that watches that is like, sweet, finally, this bitch is dead. Because she's so hateable, especially when compared against glorious Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Right? If we have this moment with Kay and maybe a couple other ones, because it hasn't really been good between them for a while, and we see the introduction of, oh, I'm trying to think who would be like a really good actress at this time to play opposite um, that kind of lead. Farrah Fawcett. Okay. I'm, I mean, I really do mean that, like Farrah yeah, Fawcett. That would be good. As his mistress, I think what it does is it gives us that, God, she's hateable. Mm. And even though Michael's doing a terrible thing, which is cheating on his wife and leaving his family and, you know, his dad warned him, don't ever take a mistress because you can't be a good man if blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I think it enhances all of that dynamic a little bit more. And maybe it's just, I mean, Sonny does it in two scenes, yeah. two brief scenes yeah. upstairs yeah. with the bridesmaid. And then later at her apartment before he gets yeah. shot well, in the causeway. No, no, it's, it's before Carlos beat down in the street. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Okay. No, so I, I agree. We have seen it just not with Michael. I did wonder that. I was like, that's like the one little element uh, like kind of missing from this whole thing. Tom has one. Yeah. Um, Fredo has several. Yeah. Sonny has them. Sonny has one. Connie has some. <laughs> Benny. Yeah. So maybe Michael is above the fray and too busy worried about the business of the family to fool around with just that kind of you know, time suck. Yeah, now we're elevating the masterpiece into uber masterpiece, right? I mean, it's just another element that I think, no, I'm with you. I think it could it could definitely enhance a lot of this. But I think, you know, I think Coppola and Puzo decided to put a lot of the uh, emphasis on Fredo and Michael in this film. Because he kind of does take one in the first film. I would argue Apollonia is like sure, formal established yeah. That's mistress. That's a new life. Yeah, yeah. And we like her. Mm -hmm. I feel much worse about Apollonia's death than I do Kay not getting yeah. killed. I kind yeah. of wish, like, God dang, that those fates should be reversed. Um, no, I'm with you. That was definitely a conversation I had with myself. Mm. But all things considered... Yeah, everything's all fucked up at the end of this movie. Yeah. Mom dies, Fredo and Michael embrace, and it's just, I think Fredo genuinely feels this is fixed or we're on the path to recovery, and Michael's just like, dude, kill him after mom's dead. Uh, and then all the hits, right? It's Tom going to Pantangeli. Did I do it right? Yes. <laughs> and in a brilliant uh phrasing of words tells him this story of how of rome the romans and how they would just rather kill themselves than live the life and deteriorate and so what does he do he goes and kills himself in the bathtub yep. dude tom tom has it going on mm -hmm. and again taking all the players off the we're doing the same thing at the end of the the second we would do that at the end of the first one is any opposing force that's gonna impede our progress must be taken off the table. Mm -hmm. It's a chess piece that must be removed. Killing Hyman Roth at the airport. And then unfortunately, the last one is Fredo, right? Mm -hmm. I'll never forget that scene. I, the first time I saw that is 
he tells this great story of the they went did a fishing trip as kids one time with dad and no one caught any fish but Fredo did because he sang a Hail Mary sang a Hail Mary said a Hail Mary before each fish and he caught like 10 fish that day or something mm-hmm. so what's he doing he's singing Hail Mary out here on the boat with Al Neri the heavy and then they they don't even finish the prayer and they cut to Michael's reaction gunshot hangs his head <sighs> poetic it's just it's and then what does michael do he goes back into the inner sanctum of the boathouse sits in the seat and just goes like this can't believe i had to do this what did i do why did i have to do that it's come to this this is a man that's lower than low i think i think uh emotionally lower even though he still has power to like up to here right Mm -hmm. Oof. at what cost and it's nothing's more than the closing of the door on K and then the final shots, this slow pan in on Michael and just pontificating. I think, what have I done? What have I done to the family? What have I done to this, my father's legacy? But there's one scene, a uh, flashback that we forgot to mention is uh, when Michael tells the family I enlisted in the service. What do you think about that? Cause we get a nice return of James Khan being, Hothead Sonny again, and the introduction of Carlo to Connie, and we see how that kind of started. I did find out that Marlon Brando was supposed to be a part of this scene, but didn't show up for the day of filming. Oh, really? Just didn't show up. (laughs) God. So Coppola, just on the day, had to rewrite the whole scene. Mm. And you would never know, because this scene's brilliant. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess it's December 7th, 1941, because the, the we just found out Pearl Harbor was bombed on the day of Vito's birthday, right? Yep. And Michael has decided to forgo education in lieu of service. And it's what we talked about last week. This isn't the life that his brothers and the dad wanted for him. I think it's the perfect capper to this film. It's just the perfect send-off to Michael laid his bed and his lone legacy. Yeah. And his father had an entirely di- different legacy. Uh, for himself and imagine for his son. And so the final shots, it's it's a brilliant just painting. You could teach a whole class on this is they they start with Don Vito and young baby or adolescent Michael on the train waving goodbye. And then they crossfade that into Michael sitting in the chair going, what now? yeah, what did I do? What have I done? What next? And then the movie ends. It's just cut to black, directed by Coppola. It's just a brilliant ending. It's bum, silence. Bum, bum. It's silence, right? There's more set, more is said in silence that could ever be said in dialogue. Said a ton with the actions that he's carried out the last 15 minutes of the movie, and now he's just left with the consequences. Mm-hmm. It's important, though, that he is in that orchard or wherever that is by himself. Yeah. Because they have kind of stated with the scene that preceded this, which is that I just joined the military. He's left at the table by himself. Michael has always been cursed with tough decisions that leave him only by himself. It's a lonely road that he's been given since day one. And he's had some help along the way, Tom and Connie specifically. But damn, dude. yeah, You kind of have to feel bad for him. I do a little bit, yeah. He's done a lot of awful things, and he's put people in a lot of awful positions, but what does he have? He has his kids, but everything's crumbling around him. And had the Godfather ended there, and there was never a part three, I think Mm -hmm. it's a satisfying conclusion. It's just I think we get it at that point. Uh, 
This movie won uh, six Academy Awards uh, for art direction, score, De Niro, screenplay, director, and picture. So that night, Coppola went away with three Oscars. This guy's in control. I mean, this, this guy was onto something. He understood film. And I'm telling you, we'll do it one day. Apocalypse Now, you want to talk about ruining a man, mm-hmm. ruining a creative drive. That film will do it to you. It's just watching these two films, like this guy's so in control of the story and the direction and what's presented to us on screen that he could never match that ever again after Apocalypse, I think. Mm. Well, those are three pretty good films. If that's your legacy, then... It's a pretty good 70s for Coppola, right? And I'd say... The, the conversation's in there, too, as well. Oh, yeah, you're right. Finds a little bit of love with Dracula. I, I think like, that movie's... I, I like Dracula. I'd like to do that someday, too. But, yeah, yeah no... Everything in the 80s, I mean, it's it's the Outsiders and the Cotton Club and... Outsiders is okay, I guess. Yeah. I guess. But never this, right? No. Never this. But when you listen and read about like what apocalypse was like that that'll that'll break a human being like that'll bring you back down to earth well, and, i mean you compare scheider's story of sorcerer and a yeah couple of stories of apocalypse now and maybe the rule is just don't go shoot in the jungle and don't make a movie in 78 how about that yeah. <laughs> except that carpenter yeah. halloween 78 yeah legendary that's the end of the godfather uh, part two I, we knew this was going to be long there's just too much too many things to discuss and uh it's just it's it was a great rewatch i just got to say that it was just you know i could probably watch part one every day Mm -hmm. on repeat like it's just you never get tired of that one this film i can't do that with Mm -hmm. uh i think it's a lot more dense i think it takes a lot more study and paying attention like you can't like be on your phone and watch this movie oh no uh but i think that's why it possibly might be the superior movie uh save your thoughts here for just a second but what's your favorite tasting note of godfather part two uh that scene when he walks in and slams the door in case face is so chilling and so cold it's partly really good because the scene between the two of them that you played with our marriage is an abortion and so was this miscarriage sets it up really nicely but Pacino in this movie understated being able to do what he does in so many instances without any dialogue or verbiage, just through a stoic look or a trembling lip is the beauty of, of this man in this film. As you said, I agree with you. So there's a lot of choices. I'm going to give it to that moment right now. Great choice. Yeah. Thanks. Yours. I think the moment between him and Fredo That's good. Because I think it's, Kazali, his time to shine as an actor. But then it's the cold Pacino that like really brings it back down and is like, yeah, you're nothing to me. Mm-hmm. You're not a brother. How do you say that? Can you imagine saying that to one of your siblings? Yeah. Like that's just brutal. Yeah. There's no coming back from this, what you've done to us. And I want to know a day in advance when you see our mother. So I'm not there. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. It's just, it's writing, acting, directing. It's just, everything's just, cooking at that point what's the oh my god moment of the godfather part two kind of like the horse head in the bed it's the prostitute and what's been yeah i completely forgot about that done to her 
And the blood is in a very interesting splatter pattern on there. Like it wasn't that they cut her neck or they, I mean, they, well, you just have to watch the movie because I am far too conservative to say how they probably killed her. But yeah, your six, your, uh, I your might, seven reference was right on. I might have to take that too. Yeah. The slaps a good number mm. two, but like I had completely forgot about this Senator post sex aftermath. Like yeah. what the hell happened here? Yeah. It's really brutal. And the way it's revealed is genius, but the, the, the way they, they really pull out the suspense. And then when you see it, you're just like really shocked at what had just taken place. Who's the master distiller on the Godfather part two. Lots to choose from. Well, you're going to go with Pacino. You already said that. I don't know how. I probably can't double down on that. Um, but there is a lot of other opportunities. It could be 10, 10 different people. Score, writing, direction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to go Kazale just because I think the lexicon usage of don't be such a Fredo was born from his performance as Fredo. Now, it helped that what was on the page was deliverable as this, you know, ineptitude. But Kazali does a fantastic job of bringing that to life. Great choice. Thanks. Yeah, he's 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 really good in this. This is like, it's probably his best performance in the mm-hmm. movie too. Yeah. Yeah, I got to give it to Pacino. This is remarkable piece of acting from the Strasbourg school of acting. Mm-hmm. It's silent. It's subdued. It's intense. It's manipulative. It's everything you want in a performance. And the arc from part one continues into this one. And you have power corrupting a man, leaving him with almost nothing at the end of this thing. Mm-hmm. That year at the Academy Awards, Art Carney won best actor for a film called Harry and Tonto. I don't know how Pacino doesn't walk away with the Oscar for this movie. That's such a sin. Uh, What's the name of the film? Harry and Tonto? What? Yeah, I don't know. Art Carney, he was on The Honeymooners with uh, yeah. Jackie Gleason. Yeah. I just, I don't know how that happens. But And Pacino would be looking for it until Scent of a Woman. He would give so many good performances and just like, just whatever. They didn't care about it. This it's it's a remarkable performance and the, it's the arc really right mm-hmm. it's from part one to I'm a military man I'm not getting involved I'm involved oh my god I'm really good at this power influence power corrupts power begets power and then nothing lonely I love it it's mm-hmm. my favorite part of the Godfather is Michael Corleone's arc and it's it's ninety percent of it is Pacino yeah so good nice yeah. choice good. How are you going to rate and grade Godfather Part 2? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Tippy Top Shelf. Masterpiece, Tippy Top Shelf. We spent two hours telling why, so I'm not going to go into it again. It's a perfect film. Two back-to-back. Yeah. Yeah, Top Shelf with with, with a bullet. Matt, is it better than last week? Mm, yeah, I think so. I do. And I would say the difference that makes it better than last week is the flashback sequences of Vito give all of the pieces that we liked in the original about Vito a recurring theme while taking it to a conflicted level with what Michael's dealing with compared to what Vito dealt with. So you get the best of both worlds. Like I said, I think the first one is, I think, more rewatchable. Like, I'd rather sit down and watch The Godfather. I think there's more out of that. I think it's, I think the character's more... A little more engaging, but this is the better movie. It's 
better directed, acted, written, structured, edited. It's just it's just a masterpiece across the board. This is a harder film to sit through, though, primarily mm-hmm. because of its length. Yeah, and it's very dense, the plot and uh, the things happening in it. But on a filmmaking level, this is it's a better movie, I yeah. think. Uh, but I'll. If I had to take a desert island, one of the two, if I'm picking, I'm probably picking the first movie to take on the island with me to keep watching. Yeah, I would agree with that. But, yeah, can you imagine having a one-two punch? Coppola just like 72 Godfather, 74 Godfather Part 2. It's just like, wow. What if the director has that? Like, even like Spielberg, Jaws, Two Close Encounters, that ain't quite there. Uh, Scorsese is like Goodfellas to like, Age of Innocence, like that's not mm. quite there either. No. Like, I can't think of a director that like has that like one-two punch, like that like back-to-back masterpieces. That's that's really hard to do. Wilder with Double Indemnity and um, Lost Weekend. Lost Weekend. That's close. A good one. Probably well, not. not as, not as good. No. no, it's yeah. We'd have to do some really serious digging to really find someone that really has that. Is there a two-film run from Hitchcock? Vertigo and I think it's Vertigo Marnie? to uh, no, it'd be Hitchcock to, or Psycho to the Birds, Birds to Marnie. North by Northwest. You might get. Uh, I think it's Vertigo to North by Northwest. I yeah, that's that's not bad. Still not this. It'd be, though. it'd be good if it was Vertigo to Psycho. Then I could give you the the case there. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. That might might be the best two runs two run f- selection we've had ever seen. Yeah. And then does the conversation, which is kind of a sneaky secret, like mm-hmm. good movie, and then Apocalypse Now, like bang, 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 bang. Dude, bang. I love Coppola too. Just like he's just like not ashamed of like what his body looks like. Just like on Apocalypse Now, he's just like shirtless the whole time and just like yeah, so fat. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and doesn't care because he believes in the movies he's making. Like yeah. that era, like him, Lucas, Scorsese, Spielberg, they all had different ways of what they saw movies being, but Coppola was. He was tapped into something. Yeah. And the Godfather helped him get that out there. But excellent. Cheers to you. Cheers to your rating. Cheers, cheers. Let's write uh wrap this up with our nightcap. Now that The Godfather Part 2 has that two moniker to it, my question to you was your top three favorite Part 2 entries. So the rules are it has to be the second film in the franchise and it has to have the number two in the title. So either two... Numerically. T-W-O, T-O-O, or two Roman numerals. Those are the rules. So uh, let's do three, three, two, two, one, one. Okay, uh, number three for me, Mad Max 2. Mad Max 2, colon, The Road Warrior, yeah. right? Yeah. Better than the first. Oh, yeah. And uh, a great film, mm-hmm. Mad Max 2. Is it better than Fury Road? Mm, boy, no. Mm-mm. But Fury Road is top 10 of a decade so far. Unique, right? Yeah. Go listen to that episode. Yeah. Number three for me, just rewatch this. I forgot how brilliant this movie is. 
from a sequel perspective, but just on kind of a character arc thing, Toy Story 2 is mm-hmm. a phenomenal sequel. Yep. And it's I think that's Pixar really kind of finding its stride a little bit with technology and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to give it to that one. Good choice. Okay. Number two, Terminator 2. I also think better than the original. Uh, that's We've got some better technology to make cooler robots. We've really kind of figured out what this whole story of Skynet is. Now, we're going to screw it up in a few years, but for a while, it's still good. And uh, Miles Dyson and Arnold, the one thing that's the bit of a drawback in that film is Eddie Furlong. He's really a shitty actor, but the movie's terrific. Great choice. You could be mine. It's actually my number two. Oh, (laughs) shit. All right. Well, we did a whole episode on it. We talked for two hours about why T2 was amazing. Uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great sequel. It's a great continuation, and it's just expands that mythology with all the technological advancements that they had before them. Yeah, T2's a masterpiece. It's That's my number two. Here comes the same number one for both of us, too, I bet. You think? Sam Raimi? Uh-huh. I have the same director. Let's see. Oh, I bet. I... I'm not going horror. Okay. I'm going with Spider-Man. Okay. Solid case to be made that that might be the best Spider-Man movie that's ever been done. Um, There's most recently we could bring up some things there, but part of the reason that the new film is so good is because it harkens to the second film. Yeah. Uh, They had figured it out. They got the technology, right? Rami had really discovered what Spider-Man or made him tick on screen. Um, Alfred Molina's put on earth to play Doc Ock. Yeah. I buy what the characters are doing. It's that's genius making. And when it comes to cinema, that's a brilliant superhero film. We'll do that episode, uh, that film one of these days, because yeah. that'll be a phenomenal two hours of talking about that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, great choice. Uh, argument could be made. That's the best superhero movie that's ever been done. Yeah. So yeah. same director, different film. This is a top tenor for me, though. It's it's Evil Dead too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Again, Raimi kind of. It's almost like he needs one to figure it out, and then two to like hit the ground running. Right? Yeah. Part Evil Dead Two is just comedy horror gold, and he knows the film he wants to make, and he's such in control of that camera. Campbell's amazing. Uh, it's a sequel that I continually come back to, and. Yeah, in this horror spectrum, it's it's hard to find a better sequel, I think, in that entire genre than that film. So good choice. That's my favorite. Yeah, Sam Raimi. Two, Raimi's a genius. We knew that already. So yeah, uh, this was great. We knew this was going to be a long episode. I think yeah, we went longer than last week, which uh, yeah, we knew it was going to happen. But yeah, a dense material to to cover on on this cask. So wrapping up next week, we're going to dive right into the third entry in this trilogy. And I think we're both going to try and see this new iteration that got released, I think, last year or the year before. So we're agreeing it's the director's cut? Yeah, so it's called The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. So I think this was the Coppola's original intention for part three before, you know, all the suits and the studio interference. I think this is what he originally wanted to get to the finish line. And you can see it right now on Paramount+. Plus. This is the only way you can uh, watch, I think. They don't even have Part 3. They just have this version. So mm-hmm. it's there. It's available to rent. It's very readily available. But I haven't seen it yet. So Neither. I'm curious to see if it's an improvement on what I've always felt this Part 3 as being a 
fairly weak entry in this Clunker. in this trilogy. Yeah. But I don't know. We might be in a good space right now that we're watching them all back to back. This one might work like really well for us. Let's and hope. I'm I'd be great and happy if that was uh not the sad chapter ending that this has been. Yeah. Up to this code of entry. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So until then, till then. Cheers to you. Uh, check us out on, on our social media platforms or Productions at gmail.com. Let us know who your fa- uh, most hateable movie wives are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got, yeah, do you have Lori from Total Recall on there? Yeah. Total Recall, Paul Verhoeven. Oh, my God. The guy, guy's a genius. <laughs> uh, but until then, I got to get going. Uh, I got to go uh, just uh, take care of some business. I hope it's not as tumultuous as what's befallen Michael. Um, But I hope it's a little more simpler than what Vito had to grow up with. I'm going to do something much more simple. I'm going to go make us a couple banana daiquiris. Oh, there you go. That sounds pretty good. How do you say it? I don't know. Banana daiquiri. Yeah. Why don't you make me a club soda with lime while you're at it? Very good. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or if you listen to podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Godfather Part 2 is property of Paramount Pictures and the Coppola Company and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Hail Mary, full of grace. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners.